0: Skywalker, I have been expecting you. I'm looking forward to completing your training. In time you will call me Master. You're gravely mistaken. You won't convert me as you did my father. Oh no, my young Jedi. You will find that it is you who are mistaken. About a great
1: many things. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Star Wars Retrospective Series. The Emperor has been expecting you. Join Garrett. It's, it's not my fault. Matt.
0: Use your aggressive feelings, boy. Let the heat flow
1: through you. And Adam, it's an old friend of mine as they review each film in the Star Wars saga.
0: Too many of them!
1: From George Lucas' original trilogy, I am a Jedi, like my father before me, to the Ewok movies and prequels, It
0: better knock, I suppose.
1: all the way through the Disney sequels and side stories. Strong am I with the Force, but not that strong. The boys will look at each film individually and decide how this popular film series holds up. Good luck. You're gonna need it. Search your feelings, podcast listeners. And pay the price for your lack of vision. The Percolated Media Star Wars Retrospective begins now. Oh, this will be the shortest offensive of all time.
2: Return of the Jedi, released May 25th. 1983 budget on this was 42.7 million dollars box office 480 million dollars and this was directed by richard marquand all right boys we have come to the movie that was the peak of my star wars fandom I remember my mom letting me stay up to watch an ABC special detailing the making of this movie. And from what I remember, it mostly talked about how Jabba the Hutt was created. But to say I was hyped for this movie would be a complete understatement. This was my Star Wars movie. I probably watched this the most out of the three growing up. This was an event for me. Adam, what do you remember about the lead up to Return of the Jedi?
1: Absolutely nothing.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
1: I knew nothing about Star Wars or the movies or anything else as this thing was getting ready to come out. However, what I do remember is this is the first movie that I ever saw in a movie theater. So my father took my older brother and I to the same movie theater that would get converted into a Hollywood video decades later for another Wow. Member of this show worked at <laughs> <laughs> yes Metro. Uh, so the Metro Four Cinemas in Antioch, California, and there are certain moments and certain scenes, especially towards the end of this, that as a four-year-old child would stick out visually and musically and such. So I got a very strong connection to this film, but it's only in flashes and glimpses, and just the memory that it was the first film I saw in a theater, and I saw it with my dad and older brother Josh,
2: Matt. Obviously, you were not around for the buildup to this. You did not see this in theaters in its initial run. You had probably heard some Ewok talk going in. What were you expecting in your first viewing of Return of the Jedi? Well, I got to put myself back in that headspace,
3: which is a scary place to be. But if I had to, I, th- I think I'm in agreement with you that of the three, this is the one I've seen the most. Or at the very least, I have the most memory of as far as particular scenes. I think I watched that speeder bike chase on Endor just on a loop when I was a kid. That's probably the Star Wars action set piece that sticks out the most in my mind of that period. But I thought for sure this technically counts as a new release since they just re-released the damn thing. And to the surprise of everyone, none of us were able to make it. And I was kind of kicking myself that we couldn't get a, one of the three of us in a theater. Because 40 years later, it made another $5 million, which doesn't surprise me because Star Wars is still in vogue. But at the same time, I wonder if they put Empire in theaters for a similar time frame, which one would make more money?
2: No idea. But we were talking... Right before we hit record on this thing, and the fact that this is back in the top five, 40 years later, is astounding to me. But, yeah, my fandom for this was huge. I had action figures for this. Adam remembers. The house I grew up in, in my room, I had Return of the Jedi wallpaper. <laughs> yes. I was so into this movie and i think i saw it in theater i saw it once with my dad and then we went back with my mother later on that night which much to my mother's chagrin she was not happy to do but uh she went anyway because she wanted to go with her boys to go see a movie at the movies and this was it for me so let's go to the making lucas brought kasdan back the story changed quite a few times, and there were instances, one in particular, that had Kazin and Lucas at pretty big odds. I think it's kind of telling. They didn't really work again after this. You know, Lucas did a couple drafts. You'll notice that Lucas's name is back in the writing credits, as well as a story by. And Kazin did a once-over of it, and there were changes being made as this thing was going on. Speaking of what was going on, let's talk about the directors being considered, because, <laughs> oh boy, what a list this is. Lucas, like last week, really didn't want to direct this time. So he and his producers, they went through a list of people that they thought they could do as good of a job as Kirshner did last week. In fact, Kirshner was called. He said thanks, but no thanks. I have this tremendous non-canon Bond film I'm working on right now called Never (laughs) Say Never Again. So uh, (laughs) he ended up passing. And then, well, Lucas considered his buddy Spielberg for a little bit, Mr. Steven Spielberg. He wanted him to tell the final movie of this saga. At that time. But Lucas's battle with the director's guild, which we talked about last week, it left him unable to legally hire his friend for this film. Um, Spielberg directed Return of the Jedi could have been interesting, right, Adam?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you look at some of the Star Wars motifs and it's got some Spielberg kind of hallmarks, you know, that we threw out, especially when you talk about parentage, single single parent household living in a galaxy far, far away. I think it would have been quite interesting, and it's amazing because at least they did find a way to team up later on. I don't see Spielberg really as the sci-fi guy, especially until much, much later. Close Encounters taken out of it, but it doesn't seem to be in his willhouse. Spielberg just seems to be more grounded, as <laughs> crazy as that sounds, in what he makes.
2: Yeah, he but wouldn't would... go way weird until later on in his
1: career. But I would love to see it, at least see what kind of story he would generate.
2: I would have liked to have seen it in a
3: curiosity type of way because this was sort of, let's see, it was 83, so I think Spielberg was at his peak. I always think of the period of Jaws through, hmm, I don't know what the cutoff point would be as far as, like, his peak. I'm sure there's a, there's a movie in there I'm forgetting, but, like, from Jaws on, I think he was firing on all cylinders. But at the same time, I think he would not have been the best fit, partially because... I think he was so pissed off about the production problems on Jaws that if you're talking about a mechanical shark not being able to work and you compare that versus some of the set pieces here, it might have been just too much for him to tackle by himself. I'm sure if he had a co-director or a visual effects artist or production designer working in tandem with him, it might have worked better, but... I'm not going to say it turned out for the best for both parties, but this is still the most high-profile thing Richard Marquand has ever been associated with.
2: And speaking of set pieces, I mean, the year later, Spielberg would do a roller coaster in a movie in a series that we're going to be talking about very, very soon, the year after this. So Spielberg could not do the movie, but he wanted to help his buddy. So he recommended somebody whose films from abroad he had seen and thought he could have been a great choice. A guy by the name of Paul Verhoeven.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit.
2: <laughs> but this was before his movie Spedders was released. And if anyone has seen that film, it has Rucker Hauer in it and is basically about rotocross racers fighting over and screwing one seductress. So, Bearhoven was out. and Paul Verhoeven actually has a great quote about this, where he, he said that his recommendation was probably revoked because they were scared that the Jedi would immediately start fucking. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Which is ironic because Jedi have been established as celibate.
2: Yeah, exactly. So Paul Verhoeven was out. Lucas had also seen a movie by the name of The Elephant Man and Mm -hmm. interviewed that film's director, David Lynch, for the job. Now, according to Lynch, he said he had a massive amount of respect for Lucas but he was not into the idea of having another person on the set telling him how to incorporate two different visions when he had ideas of his own. Of course, Lynch would go on to make a movie I hope we get to one day called Dune. I think we can agree that the visions of Lucas and Lynch definitely wouldn't have meshed. Absolutely
3: not. But that interview that David Lynch did, talking about his meeting with George Lucas, is one of the funniest things you will ever listen to. I think we should put it as a attachment to this review because it's basically him. He was at a convention or... A screening of some kind. He talks about how George Lucas brought him to this restaurant that only serves salad and he goes, <laughs> you know, I, I had such a headache and he showed me this thing called a Wookiee and I wanted to throw up like it's just, just, it's great. just it's the most miserable <laughs> experience possible but when you watch David Lynch's movies and then you listen to him talk, you're like, this is the same guy who made Eraserhead in yeah. really out there type of movies where he sounds like this nasally like video clerk.
2: But you know what, when I, when I think about what Lynch could have done with stuff like Jabba's Palace and uh, what a Lynchian Ewok would look like, <laughs> oh, I get kind of sad that we didn't get it.
3: <laughs> I, I, he would have he made Jabba's Palace like the entire movie. I agree with that. But I also want to talk about the the director that he went from one David to another David.
2: Yeah, I'm getting to that. So they didn't brought in somebody who I have no idea of the reason why. I guess they saw some of the vision that David Cronenberg had on his previous work, Shivers and the Brood, and somehow thought he'd be a good fit. But in interviews, Cronenberg has pretty much said the same shit that Lynch said, and that he didn't want someone looking over his shoulder trying to say what should and shouldn't be brought to the screen. He, of course, will go on to do Videodrome and one we're going to get to soon, Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Matt, you've been pretty outspoken about the fact that Cronenberg is one of, if not your favorite director. That would have been interesting, too, huh?
3: Interesting, yes, but I don't know how it would have turned out. My big question is, what did they see in a previous? There were borderline B-movies, but they were made with conviction and no restraints. Like, you watch something like Shivers and Rabid. I mean, Rabid basically is borderline pornographic at certain points. And Scanners is... Despite being a science fiction movie, it's more of like a political thriller when you watch it. Because people, when they think of Scanners, they think of the head explosion. That's not the entire movie. Mm-mm. And again, that's not something you would see in Return of the Jedi. Although some of these uh, special edition changes make your would make your head explode if you think about them long enough. I would have liked to have seen it because he's always been interested in science fiction. Because he was attached to Total Recall for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know, his take was going to be a lot closer to the Philip K. Dick story where he's just an average guy, one of Richard Dreyfuss, and then Verhoeven took it over. That's where Schwarzenegger came involved. It became an entirely different movie. Because when you look at Cronenberg's career and how it's kind of gone in phases, he's done movies with sci-fi components. You know, I mentioned Scanners. uh, The Brood has some of that. But the closest I think he got to true science fiction was Existence, and that's kind of more indebted to The Matrix slash Mm -hmm. The Lawnmower Man than something like Star Wars. It's ironic that I think Existence came out right around the same time as The Matrix.
2: And Thena Menace.
3: I would like to have seen it, but I don't don't think him and Lucas would have gotten along. I I think it would have been very confrontational. And Lucas has always been someone who works best when he can be collaborative, not necessarily the sole voice of creative merit.
2: Yeah, Cronenberg, you brought up a few examples. Those are all pretty much his vision. We never saw this side of David Cronenberg. He's grown into a pretty concaecorous guy. You talk to him, he is pessimistic. You know, he reminds me a lot of William Friedkin, where it's very, very rare he has something nice to say about anybody, (laughs) honestly. I would like to have seen it, though. I would like to have seen what he he could have done with this, what him and Lucas could have come up with together. But this ended before it started, and there has to have been a good reason for that. So Cronenberg's gone. They brought on a guy by the name of Richard Marquand after Lucas had seen and admired a movie of his called The Eye of the Needle. He would go on a couple years later to make a really good movie, actually, called Jagged Edge. This is a weird choice, though. Besides Eye of the Needle at this point, he was mostly a documentary filmmaker, but Lucas said that he thought his energy and the way he worked with actors would really be an asset to the production, meaning that he would do the dramatic actor work while Lucas focused on second unit and the effects work. But it turned out that Hamill and Fisher both didn't really get along with him and lucas was once again kind of forced to show up on set and write the ship
1: i find it almost deliciously ironic that lucas back in the day was kind of in the same boat that disney marvel lucas film is now where you know lucas created this all but he's like i don't really want to direct you know i want someone else to do it however he still wants to be in charge and he wants everything done his way he just doesn't want to be the director he wants a yes man to take over Couple that with the way that so much of the way Disney's live-action IPs that they've bought from Marvel and Star Wars. And they don't want visionaries. They want someone who's going to take the images that have been created, take that production art, take the effects work, and put it on screen without having their own vision, their own say. They want a shooter, but they don't seem to want a visionary director. And it seems like Lucas kind of wanted that then. Like, he had an idea and he needed someone else to make his idea come true because he didn't feel like he could do it anymore. But he didn't want that person to have their own ideas. He just wanted them to be able to parrot his own. It's a strange phenomenon when you look at somebody given so much credit to creating this universe, but just couldn't find it in himself to continue it. You know? It's, I don't know. It's a strange, strange course when you look at where Star Wars is today.
3: This movie, in a lot of ways, is prophetic for things to come. I'll say that.
2: Mark Kwan later said in interviews that Lucas was around so much that directing this movie was like directing King Lear with Shakespeare being just off
1: stage. (laughs) Toby Hooper said, tell me about it.
2: Yeah, no shit. (laughs) We've made that comparison so much, we've got to get to that series eventually. Lucas had, uh, as I said, he had more of a hands-on role with this one. There is behind-the-scenes footage of him talking to Mark Kwan about how the Ewoks need to act and walk. So he definitely had his visions put onto Marquand. And as you said, Adam, I think he was more of a yes man. I also need to say that I actually watched two versions of this film for this podcast, both the original and Blu-ray release. And boy, do I have things to say about the changes made in Blu-ray release. Guys, which uh, which version did you guys watch for this podcast?
3: On Disney Plus. I assume it's the Blu-ray equivalent.
2: Adam?
1: Yeah, I busted out my Blu ray just because I don't like the HDR effect of Disney Plus, but it was that Blu ray disc, which is the same, but it's just, yeah, it's the special edition, if you were to call it, you know, version, mm-hmm. the most recent edition they've put out.
2: So, we start off with the fanfare again, and then the crawl starts. This time we're told that Luke's returned home to Tatooine to rescue Han, while another Death Star is being constructed. Save that argument for later. Put a pin in that. <laughs> what i find interesting about this week's crawl is that it makes zero mention of the emperor coming to the death star to oversee it we'll find out about that in the film's very first scene uh, what do you guys feel about this week's crawl
1: i think if this was done today people would throw an absolute fit over the way it was done i mean this is almost the equivalent of somehow palpatine returned you know if somehow there's another death star but you just kind of go with it back then you know and i i tried thinking of how would this play today, 40 years later? And it wouldn't. You'd have the Star Wars bitch fest going on with it. But I think it's concise in letting us know where we are, what we're about to see. I don't have an issue with it, which is strange because I should. But I don't. Great, here we are, good to go.
3: Uh, I don't like this title crawl at all because it sets up the fact that, if you look at the three paragraphs, if you notice, this title crawl describes the three acts of the movie. It's Telling you what the movie's going to be about. But I also don't like that they're rinse and repeat the Death Star. And the third paragraph is telling us what we already know. That the Death Star is this ultimate super weapon that will destroy the Rebels. Okay? Why couldn't you come up with something more creative? I think people would throw a fit about this because people would just be saying, Oh, you're just remaking the first one. Myself included. That would be the complaint I have. Uh outside of that how how can you say secret construction when it's a giant fucking space station that you can see <laughs> from Endor <laughs> there's nothing secret about that whatsoever <laughs>
2: I'm going to go ahead and say, I I love how this film starts. We're seeing a ship ejected out of a Star Destroyer. And this ship, it should be said, before all future versions of the previous films came out, was actually seen for the very first time in this movie. Just the ship emerging and those wings unfolding. That shot there was actually on the cover of my storybook version of this film. The ship lands in the Death Star and out emerges Vader. He looks slightly different here. His helmet is fresh off the detail block. It's so shiny. (laughs) And uh, he has a chain around his neck, which I didn't recognize from before. For. And I also like how Ben Burt he recorded a ton of footsteps in underground tunnels located by the Golden Gate Bridge and used them for Vader's footsteps throughout the entire film, which adds so much drama to every scene he's in. But I love this fucking opening scene.
1: Yeah, I really do as well. It's a little bit different than what we've got before, and I'm glad for it. But this shuttle design, I'm a huge fan of. I like the wings unfolding the way they do. Mm-hmm. And the way they shoot Vader as he's descending the ramp, That low angle looking up, he just looks so massive, so imposing. You know, your big bad villain is back. And it only takes a few seconds before you realize there is somebody more imposing than this giant Sith Lord enveloping the screen. And I think it does a really good job of suddenly this worker who's scared of Vader is really scared of the Emperor who's about to come.
3: You can enjoy having Darth Vader back for this one scene, because after this, he is reduced to second fiddle, which he was in A New Hope. But I think it's more of an issue here in the sense that Empire really established him as the definitive, like, Star Wars villain. And I get the rationale of bringing in his master and tying this all together. But at the same time, I feel like it's kind of a... I don't want to call it a step back, but it's a reduction of where he was at the end of Empire. He looks good. I like the new polish on his suit. I never noticed the chain before. that's that's funny. and I've seen this movie quite a bit as far as this being the first time. But for a lot of this movie, Vader feels kind of I, I don't know. Something's off. and i mm-hmm. and I get there there's a reason why, but i I think. Vader is part of my issue with the movie, which we'll get to later.
2: This whole conversation about how the workers of the Death Star are falling behind, so now the Emperor is coming to see the construction, it's nicely blocked, nicely directed, and to me it's important because it is literally the last time we will see any Imperial presence for the next 35 minutes or so. (laughs) I would argue it's
3: the last time you see the Empire for the entire movie because they can at least line up straight and look (laughs) imposing, which they don't really do for the rest of the movie.
2: (laughs) It should be said that there is a deleted scene that was actually in the film until the very last minute. It basically has Vader leave this scene... And go to a room, the same room that we saw him in, in Empire, where he's sitting there where he had his helmet taken off and put back on. He sits and converses with Luke, who we see light the green lightsaber and then turn it off before placing it in or two. This is all done from a shot of his hands. And I guess it's to keep us guessing whose side he's really on. But I'm glad it was cut because with Vader's voice just going, Luke, it was just very silly. Then I do really like the introduction of Luke that we're going to get later on. Adam, you've seen that scene, right? I have. And...
1: I think there's a way that they could have done something similar and it would have worked. As it is, I'm glad it was cut out.
2: All right. You guys have already spilled the beans about how you guys feel about the Death Star being back. Well, I was just going to
3: say, as far as that deleted scene goes, because I've, I've never seen it,
2: I wish that was included because
3: I don't like that they wait until the third act for Luke and Vader to have a conversation. And there's supposed to have been a year since Empire.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So it feels kind of rushed when he gets back. And he's like, so you've accepted the truth and all that. I'm like, I would have liked more interaction between the two of them not just hearspeak or assumptions based on being told where they
2: are all right let's talk about the death star being brought back lucas wanted to save the death star for the third story but he didn't know if there would even be another movie after the first so he included it in that one and he decided to bring it back here Myself, I love the look of this Death Star. I love how it looks maybe 70% done. And it just has a more foreboding presence to me than the one from the original film. Though, man, that moon sure does dwarf it, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) It really does. And I got to say, when I watch this movie and when I watch this trilogy, it doesn't bug me. And part of the reason it doesn't bug me is that, as you said, I love the look of this half quote-unquote, half-finished Death Star. I think this thing is even more imposing because it's slightly opened. You can see the work and such going on. And I think it's freaking great looking. I've grown to resent it because of J.J.'s films and that trilogy and doing the same thing, like bringing a third one into it. And so when I'm seeing this by itself, I'm not upset. Nowadays, I'm sick and tired of it like I am Tatooine, (laughs) just because (laughs) 40 years later, we're still returning to this well. And I think that's the problem when we watch these now in retrospect.
3: God, if you don't like Tatooine and Death Stars, the first 40 minutes of this movie is just uh, (laughs) him taking off both gloves and hitting you with both hands at the same
2: time. Speaking of Tatooine, let's get there. We, We meet our buddies, 3PO and R2, as they make their way to Jabba's Palace. They get to the palace, and the doorman lets them in, even though he acts like a real asshole while doing so. So they walk in, and I love the feel of Jabba's Palace. I love all the creatures in it. I love the almost downtrodden cantina feel to it. That spider that walks behind 3PO used to creep me out as a
1: kid. Oh, that thing's creepy.
2: Oh, yeah. We're seeing a pig guard, and I know he's a Gamorrean guard, but I call him a pig guard when I was a kid. And then the presence of Jabba's right-hand man, Bib Fortuna, figure I used to have as a kid. This makeup on him is outstanding. And one thing they do in this is just engulf us in new characters.
1: They do, and I think this is where Lucas really wanted, it. as you said, took that Cantina scene, upped it, makes it darker. You know, you would think the kids that grew up with Star Wars in 78, are a little bit older now. You know, it's like going from Iron Man to Iron Man 3. you got to make things darker and a little more creepy in that sense. But everything here feels like it's practical, and we don't get long explanations. Bib Fortuna, he just looks awesome in that head tail. And then when we get the other creatures, we don't linger on them. We just get a chance to see them, and it seems to populate out this universe and expand it a little bit, and that I like.
3: I like how everything feels new and disgusting to a certain point. And I think one of the problems that this kind of suffers from versus A New Hope is there, there's a real sense of awe of seeing Jabba for the first time, but the fact that we've already seen him thanks to the special editions kind of takes away from... Just a a small amount of his presence. Agreed. I do like this design is obviously considerably better because it's practical and it's puppeted by multiple people. But I like that Jabba's palace is just this this place of misery and despair. And you're right, everything's practical. Uh, With one exception later on.
2: Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But just as 3PO says he has a real bad feeling about this, we come upon Jabba the Hutt. A character that, again, as Matt just pointed out, before the special editions, he would have been seen for the very first time here. Uh, so let's talk about him. I, I love this character's originally created. He does have that gangster feel to him and his language and the way he just takes great joy out of things such as Han being on his wall. And yes, a princess in chains at his side make him pretty grotesque in a very fun way. And God, did I want this job at Playset as a kid that I, I, I never was able to get it. How do we feel about Jabba the Hutt? Matt kind of gave his thoughts. Adam, what about you, sir?
1: I think he looks fantastic. I think the his throne that he's laying on is amazing. I mean, it's like they took Don Corleone, made him into a space slug, and put him in here. You know, that's the feel that I get from this, mm-hmm. is that we're looking at the godfather of the underworld. Uh, he's imposing. He's not scared. He's seems to be all-powerful of this land. And we get that 10 seconds in without knowing anything about him. And much like Matt said, I think... Not seeing Java until now makes it much more imposing. The addition to him in Star Wars makes it even less so. If you can take that out of your mind when you see this Java, it just works so much better, as Matt said.
2: Yeah, in theaters, it was so awesome seeing him for the first time here. Like another character we're going to talk about in a little bit, you know, we've been told about this character for two straight movies. And now that we're getting to see him in the flesh, so to speak, it's pretty remarkable. So the droids walk in, and the question is, how did R two get down those fucking steps?
1: There's a handicap ramp. ADA accessible.
2: They give a message from Luke, who says, as a token of his goodwill, he leaves the two droids, to which three PO feels hurt that Luke would do such a thing. <laughs> what did he say? This is also when we see Han on his wall, to which Jabba says is his favorite decoration. Luke's kind of a dickhead here. So this is my question. Yes. What exactly was the
3: plan to get Han? Because this seems overly complicated. Use it, why, why use the bribe here or just come in and say, hey, give us Han? Because we see later on the Rebel Alliance has this giant fleet. All you have to do is surround Java's palace and be like, give us Han Solo or we're blowing you sky high.
0: No,
2: the point of it is it's a retcon mission, pretty much is what it is. Luke sent the droids in. The only reason the droids are sent in... He needs his weapon. He needs to smuggle his weapon in. So he he sends R2 and 3PO in. That's how he gets his weapon in. And then Leia was sent in to get Han off the wall. And then Lando's there to kind of case the joint, and I'm pretty sure he's also sending messages and w- what's going on, when the, when's the good time to come, and whatnot. This was an eight-month thing that they had planned, and to come in and just blow a sky high, well, you're also blowing up your friend too. So you kind of have to uh, find a way around that. So it, it's pretty much a recognition. mission. Now I will agree with you; it's way too overcomplicated, <laughs> but this is how they decided to bring everybody in, and I do like this way because every character gets their own introduction here, which is pretty cool.
1: Is it overly complicated? Yeah, it is to a point, but so is this entire opening sequence that's about a quarter of the movie. <laughs> it goes. It's a little much, but it's fun, and we get some good times here going on. And once Luke shows up, we're getting a different Luke Skywalker than we've gotten before.
3: Yes, and I will say this. This part of the movie is great, but the problem is, once they leave, it has no bearing on the rest of the movie.
1: None whatsoever. No.
3: <laughs>
2: No, they got, they got Han back. That's pretty much it.
3: <laughs> yeah, but it makes you wonder, like, could you have made this a whole movie, or at least a considerable portion is just either rescuing Han, or you make Jabba a bigger part of this story? Because, like I said, all three acts of this movie feel disconnected to a certain degree. And totally, this is even feels different. Like, everything from the, the lighting and the creature design to the... There's some repulsive elements... It just feels like a very different movie than the rest of it. I'll agree with that.
2: It feels like a different movie than the rest of the films, honestly. This
3: this feels like the biggest departure of all of them.
2: We then go to some factory droid, actually voiced by Mark Wand himself, actually, as another droid is being tortured, so apparently droids feel pain. Yeah, droids have
3: pain sensors. But this movie establishes, in the same way that we have
2: seen in the previous movies,
3: Droids are treated as second-class citizens. Luke just gives them away, Mm -hmm. fully knowing that their lives could be in jeopardy. You got ones being tortured. Like, they are basically the... Slaves. Yeah, they're slaves. They're they're the lower class. And I think one of the things I've liked about Star Wars post- this trilogy, is they've really talked about how droids get treated like shit. When they want to, because, holy shit, when we get to Solo, am I going to have words to say? Oh, mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, my God things, but yeah, I like that they're...
3: <laughs> they're established that being a droid in Star Wars sucks.
2: The droid sends 3PO to his new of Jabba, being Jabba's interpreter. And R2, well, we'll talk about what he does here in a bit. <laughs> okay, so we then move on to my first bout of contention with these updated versions. We cut to a party being held in the palace with this song called Jedi Rocks. Yes, Jedi Rocks. Being sung as CGI creatures, bad CGI creatures I might add, are seen into the camera. Now in the original version, this scene was simple yet effective. It was an unusual jazzy little tune with music written by John Williams' son, by the way. And it just had enough tinge that it worked for me. Yeah, you could see the strings on the puppet, but it was offbeat enough, and you you got the vibe of what was happening. Plus, it leads into what happens next beautifully. Here, I guess Lucas was looking for something more grandiose, and this concoction was come up with, with the exception of that blue pillow playing the keyboard, who I love. He's Mm -hmm. always been my favorite. Nothing about this works, especially seeing Boba Fett hit on chicks. This is awful.
3: (laughs) Everything about this is painful to watch or listen to. I think both apply. Because the song is terrible. The effects do not hold up. It felt like they were kind of showing off at the time to say, you know, we can have fully digital characters interact with practical sets. But, it was
2: a test, Or it was a test run for Phantom Menace. You know,
3: yeah, that's well, what he, I kind of took it yeah, as. And he compromised because he shot new stuff with the Slave Girl actress. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's very strange how it's all put together. And it's... I'm not going to say it's the worst change, but it's definitely one of the most noticeable.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And why is Boba Fett still here? He should have taken yeah. his money and just, he, you know, he got paid. There's no reason for him to stick around. Especially when, you know, Luke shows up later. He should be like, all right, fuck this. There's a Jedi that. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: thought of that, too. Why is he hanging around this fucking palace unless he just wants to hang with shit? <laughs> It's really bizarre.
1: Now, before I say anything, I just want to say I do have a statue figure set of the three chorus girls that are there singing into the microphone. (laughs) Because, of course, I do. However, Lucas's insistence to build out digitally this. He's called an Ewok eater. This guy with the giant mouth. Really? Yeah. He's an Ewok eater. That's what he is. I don't get it. It makes no sense. I mean, I know he was getting ready to put his own kids into the movies and stuff, and he says that he thought this would be great for them, but damn, this is bad. Jedi – no. If, if Jedi Rocks is what you needed to add, then they needed to keep George away from this completely because it's – yeah, it's it's bad. It's, it's really bad.
3: I guess it's just one of those things also where nobody wanted to tell George Lucas no. They're like, well, he's been watching a lot of Tex Avery cartoons lately, so
1: I guess we'll let him have this. <laughs> and I, I remember the news that, ooh, there's a new song called Jedi Rock yep, in I Jabba's too. Palace, mm-hmm. and being like, okay, this is gonna be interesting. And then it starts, and it's just like, I feel a disturbance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: We see the dancer have a bit of a fight with Jabba, and she's going to learn real quick that you don't do that, as she is sent right into the Rancor pit. More on this Rancor here in a bit. But we cut to a blast being fired, and a Wookiee growl, followed by a bounty hunter named Bosch. Here, the bounty hunter introduces Chewbacca, who Jabba is more than happy to have. Now, interesting note about the voice, the voice of this disguise of Princess Leia is voiced by the same woman who voiced E.T., a woman that by the name of Pat Welsh, who Bert overheard speaking while at a camera store. And so Bert brought her back for this. Jabba and Bosch, they have a bit of a back and forth on the price he should pay for this trophy, but Bosh's response is to blow the whole place up. <laughs> what I love about this is how Jabba reacts. He's just like, you're fearless and inventive, and it just causes him to find a middle ground here. He's not fucking threatened by this guy. He's just like, okay, well, then I'll just lower it a bit. He finds his relentlessness <laughs> really endearing.
1: Yeah, and that's why... I just get the feeling that he's just a badass godfather, you know, to yeah. what's going on. He's not scared. He kind of admires it. and He's still going to get his way by giving only a little bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, once, once Leia shows up as Bosch, like, I like the scene. I like the outfit. I like the design. I like that we know the thermal detonator is obviously a space hand grenade. Like, there's just little touches that are simple, easy, and effective.
2: This is also when, for some reason, Lando finds the perfect time for a close-up without his mask. (laughs) Poor Chewie. He hits his head on the overhead beams as we see a creature eat another creature and belch outside the palace. And then we cut to who we think is the bounty hunter going through the palace and finding Han and Carbonite. She hits the button to melt the Carbonite, and we see a melting effect that, let's just say, isn't the greatest. They've touched it up over the years. I think for the Blu-ray release, they did the most work on it. It looks better than the original version but it still doesn't look great
1: no i thought it looked just as good as it did in life force when i first saw oh, this. god oh, jesus just with much less boobs
2: all right so let's talk about han here a lot of debate about whether or not to kill him as i mentioned earlier that was the fight i was talking about with kazan and lucas as Ford had been the one who had not signed the three film deals that Hamill and Fisher did. I don't think it was ever in question whether Harrison Ford would come back, but Cavson, again, really pushed for Han to die, as he thought it would have been perfect for the Rebels to doubt if they could continue without him. But Lucas was adamant that he lived. The reason he gave at the time was, look, Empire was such a dark film for these characters, he wanted everyone to have a happy ending this time. Ford for his part also pushed for the character to die as we talked about last week. And being the pessimistic actor Harrison Ford is, his theory as to why Lucas pushed for Han to live was, and I quote, dead Han dolls don't sell very well.
0: <laughs> what <laughs> do you guys probably feel
3: right?
2: Yeah. Exactly. Matt, what do you feel about this choice to bring Han back?
3: Should never have happened. His arc was done at the end of Empire.
2: And as a result, throughout this entire
3: movie, he's there to make snide remarks and guard a door. He has no character in this movie, to the point where even Harrison Ford was saying, like, what am I supposed to do? What's my direction? I get why you bring him back, because he's your most bankable star. But also, I think Harrison Ford felt in his mind, look, I got a new franchise. I did your space fantasy movie. It was cute. You know, I came back for the second one, and I ostensibly died, so I should be done. The only way to justify bringing him back in my mind is if you, like, definitively killed him off in this one. There was no way he could come back. Like, he dies guarding the, the shield generator as it explodes. But, yeah, I've never liked bringing Han back, and we kind of pay the price later on.
1: See, I've never wanted Han dead just because I don't know when and where they would have done it where it would have mattered. I don't know if killing him at Cloud City, th- there would need to be something worthy of the sacrifice, and nothing in that movie would have, I don't think, would have done it and I don't know how they would have got the band back together in this one. It just would have been a completely different third act of that film if there would have been a reason for Han to be dead. So I've never had a problem with him coming back. I think he's much more Indiana Jones in this film than he is Han Solo, but that doesn't bug me because I love Indiana Jones.
2: Yeah, I'm with Adam here. I I think it it would have really dragged the film down if he had killed him, and I think it was right to have him stay till the end. He does have side remarks, and Adam, that's a great observation you made, that he is more Indy here than Han. (laughs) But I I think his presence is needed throughout this. I don't know if you need a character arc for this. I mean, there are so many character arcs going on in this film already. I I think him being in the background was an asset. Because what are you going to do? Have Leia do everything at the bunker? It just kind of offsets everything.
1: But I'll say, I do think it's great. Like I mentioned before, when they set something up, it creates a problem later. Is that now nobody's got the balls to kill their heroes. Mm -hmm. And maybe the sequel trilogy, the prequel trilogy, where it would have made sense and you could have had a good reason. Instead, you just don't do it because Lucas's mandate back then was these three are unkillable. So now you get a group of three together, and they're always unkillable. So the threat is gone.
2: So Han falls off the wall in a truly painful-looking fall, and uh, we find out that he can't see for a bit, and he also hears the voice of Leia. And Williams outlines this with the Han-Leia love theme here. But they're not alone, as we hear Jabba laugh, and he's revealed being right behind the curtain. He calls Han Bantapudu and has him hauled away. He then brings Leia up close and gives him a bit of a slimy kiss. And, yeah, this was an interesting way of bringing Leia back. Give him the job of having him kiss her for a bit. All right, so Fisher. She herself went to Lucas, as this film was in pre-production, and said, and I quote, I'm not sure the movie going public knows that I'm a woman. (laughs) She did not like the rope she had in either Empire or New Hope. And uh, wanted to show that, yes, she is indeed a woman. So, after this meeting, Lucas came back and... This metal bikini was indeed his idea, his design. <laughs> I feel like this is a sexless universe, so I don't want to infer that Jabba was doing anything with this as a sexual. To me, as is proven with Han, as is proven with Chewbacca, Jabba likes collecting trophies. And to him, Leia is his most prized trophy, which is why she's up front and center. That's my take on it. Adam, what about you, sir?
1: Yeah, I don't think the metal bikini, I don't think her her look is there to tantalize Jabba or other huts that way. I do think it's a way to tantalize visitors to java's palace is a way that this is my trophy look what i have you know she's a she's a trophy not bride, but you know a trophy to java not one who he would have affection for in my opinion
3: i would also say that one of my problems with star wars is i hate how sexless it is for the most part for something that's so embedded on relationships and love is a big part of empire parentage yeah yeah parentage, it's a little weird that there's, like, no intercourse, and the Jedi, it's like, oh, yeah, when you hit ten, they point to your crotch and say, you can't use this anymore. Everything is just, you know, and I'm not saying I want these to be sleazy, like, beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I certainly don't want that. <laughs> and, yeah, you're right about him being uh the Godfather, because he basically looks like Marlon Brando towards
1: the end of his life. <laughs> yeah.
2: Also, all that being said, I, I make it a point at every con I go to to take a picture with a woman who is in the Princess Leia bikini.
1: Not hard to find, since there's about $4 no. million of them every con. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's why it's, <laughs> it's a fun game to play. We then cut to Han and Chewie reuniting, and Chewie tells Han of Luke's plans to rescue them and the fact that he's now a Jedi Knight. Speaking of Luke, that's our next character to enter the palace, as we see the doors open from afar, and out of the sun emerges a figure in a robe, two Gamorrean guards, they try to approach him, and Luke force-chokes them. To me, as a child, that scared the hell out of me, as I'd only seen mm-hmm. Vader do this. So my thoughts were, is Luke bad?
1: Yeah, when you first hit him, he's the man of black walking across the desert. Mm-hmm. He's, he's dressed in black. He's using even the video games. You know, that is a dark side power, to be able to force-choke somebody. Mm-hmm. So he's using things that at least, in my opinion, Yoda would not have taught him. He's a different Luke, and we're not given a complete time frame, but it's clear some time has passed, but he's a different Luke than the one we left at the end of the last film.
3: The implication for this is that Luke is starting to go down a darker path. You know, he's dressed in black robes. He's doing something that we've only seen Darth Vader do. And this fits for me because Luke, in my mind, is not a true Jedi because Mm he, you know, he he wasn't indoctrinated with it. He just learned the practicality of the Force, not necessarily that one side or the other. So the fact that he's kind of cherry-picking what he can do, because he's got both sides, obviously, with who his father is. This is a great introduction for Luke until he takes that hood off and you see that ridiculous bowl cut.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Luke influences good old Bib Fortune to take him to Jabba now. So he goes to Jabba, who is somehow immune to Luke's Jedi ways, and when Jabba refuses to give up uh, Han and the Wookiee, Luke uses the Force to get a blaster as Jabba sends him right into the Rancor pit. All right, the Rancor. Lucas originally wanted... A Godzilla-type battle involving someone in a suit, but a ton of tests proved to be unsatisfying, so they decided to go this way with this hand puppet. This is a very Harryhausen-esque battle. It is a Phil Tippett creation, and I have a ton of respect for Tippett and what he's done in the Hollywood landscape of effects, a lot of which, Matt, me, and you have covered in the past, but this fight just does not look good. You'd think with all the tinkering Lucas has done with these films, he would have done something with the fact that Luke looks like he's looking at a movie screen as the Rancor picks him up, and Luke puts a bone in his mouth.
3: I have more leniency with it because I advocate for practicality whenever you can use it. I think it's offset by the design of the Rancor itself. That I like that design so much. It takes me back to, like, I think a lot of this early part. The reason why I like it so much is because it reminds me of the Jim Henson style of, like, Labyrinth. And I also like that Luke kills the Rancor without using his lightsaber. That's one thing I really like that, you know, because so often with Star Wars now, it's like, a Jedi without a lightsaber is just useless.
1: You know, we complimented how well he fixed a lot of the matting and screen work in Empire Strikes Back, and I don't know why he did not feel the need to do so with this Rancor battle. I like the practical rancor. I love Harryhausen's work, Wrath of the Titans. I prefer the original by far because I just I love seeing stop motion practical work. I've seen documentaries on how he did this, so I love it. That said, yeah, there's times where they're in it together, and even for the re-releases, they've never color corrected. They've never gotten rid of the of the matte lines. And I can't imagine why, because little fixes would make this look like it should. But I freaking love this Rancor. Such a terrifying beast. And everybody wanted one of these, you know, Mm, as a kid as well. You wanted this to be your Godzilla in your Star Wars playset. You really did.
3: I thought you meant you wanted it in your basement when you were getting <laughs> <it. laughs>
1: Now that I have kids, I'd like one there to keep them under control.
2: <laughs> I agree with you. I think the design is awesome. I love the red eyes. It's a really awesome look. And as someone who has had Dotsons as pet, I do like the <laughs> sound effects. As Ben Burt said that he recorded his neighbor's Dotson growling, and he used those for the Brancor vocal effects, <laughs> which if you know Dotsons, they're the small wiener dogs. Just a fun bit of trivia there.
1: I even love at the end, though, that witty dies, I love the Rancor Keeper that comes out and weeps over him.
2: I was going to say, like, I picture Garrett outside yelling, Dotson!
1: We got Dotson! We got Dotson in here! <laughs>
2: You know what? I really do like the score here, too, as Williams is really amping it up. That this this is a monster movie theme, if I've ever heard it, in a Star Wars movie. Uh, Williams, again, he really brings it here. We'll talk about a lot of the themes. You know, he he does have new themes in this, but this might be my favorite score of the entire series.
1: I like it. Not my favorite theme, but I really like it. And, yeah, it's fitting for what it is. And it's crazy think about it. In the middle of this, well, beginning, but, you know, in this series of space wizards and lasers and laser swords and spaceships, we're just getting a monster battle. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're busting out a monster out of nowhere. And I think there's something really cool about that.
2: Yeah. I was talking about the overall score. Oh, the overall
1: score score I think is absolutely just, it's phenomenal. It's one of his best.
2: So after Luke slams the door on the Rancor, ending the fight, we see that everyone has someone who loves them as the Rancor's handler finds the creature with his head in the door and cries for him. I thought this was a sweet little moment. You know, this is something that, like, uh, Guillermo del Toro really amps up in his films where, you know, he's like, fuck the humans. Like, I I feel bad for the monsters, you know, (laughs) and I think that's kind of what Lucas is playing up to here.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that's a good way to to put it together. Is yeah, it feels like a Del Toro moment of yeah, this it, it humanizes this rancor when you think about it, and yeah, yeah it's it, it's a funny little moment that has no place, but it still fits.
2: We then cut to the Rebels reunited again as they're led to Jabba. This little dialogue was a huge part of the original trailer, and I remember it running during Saturday morning cartoons. I'd be eating cereal, and I'd be hearing Han ask Luke how we are doing, and Luke saying, same as always, and Han responding, that bad, huh? You know, Matt, unlike you, I think four shines here. He has some great lines. Like later, he goes, you're going to die here, you know. Convenient. I find those moments really funny, and you need funny moments in a movie like this. Java then says that as punishment, they are all to be terminated, and they're taken to the sawlock pit. We cut to the barge, and we see that R2 has, been ta- has taken a job as a waiter. Uh, not a good use for R2 here. Matt, you mentioned that this feels different. You know what I got feelings of, especially seeing Luke on this barge and walking this plank? I got a pirate movie vibe. Yeah. Like he's Earl Flynn, you know. He's going to be taking out his sword here in a bit. Like this is this is kind of Earl Flynn. Don't, do you agree with that?
3: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like this is the impetus for Treasure Planet, the Disney movie.
0: Oh it, yeah, yeah.
3: It had like floating pirate ships and everything had this cyberpunk kind of look to it. I think this is the setup for that. But as cool as this is, can we go somewhere other than the desert, please? Like like this movie makes me never want to visit New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> or not just this movie, this franchise. Like, I'm like Anakin. I fucking hate sand.
2: I was gonna say. So you feel for Anakin then when we get to that movie? Yeah, I do. Well, in what way? <laughs> so Luke walks the plank, as they say, and we see that the Sarlacc has grown a beak since the original edition. Okay, George, if you say
1: so. <laughs> I I like the update on the Sarlacc. I will. Do get you it really? I do. It was nothing but a boring space anise in the desert the first time. And now they've at least given <laughs> it a little something to make it feel dangerous.
2: What's that, Matt?
1: Yeah, it's a giant space vagina.
2: Well, you know what? It's funny you mention that because I've always taken this. And I could be reading reading way too into this, but don't forget, Lucas was also writing Temple of Doom around this time. He was in a dark period of time in his life. He was going through a divorce. I think the fact that this looks like a vagina Antada is not coincidental. That's just my reading on it. So, Luke goes out, he says goodbye to his friends, but as he jumps, he uses the plank to spring himself up and he catches the lightsaber that R2 has launched, and the battle is off and running with his new green lightsaber apparently being set to stun. Alright, let's talk about this green saber It was obviously something we hadn't seen before And it baffled me as a kid In reading the books that accompanied this film's release It was made by Luke himself Lucas had a more literal reason For making the lightsaber green If Luke had made this blue Lucas didn't think that the audience would put together That this was not the same lightsaber That was thrown to the depths of Cloud City The film before and he needed another formal color that would be easy to light in the effects rooms. I like it, though. I like how it looks on screen. We're going to get some great shots of it later on in the film. I think the green works. Well, it's definitely a better contrast with this desert backdrop,
3: and I think it the fact that he's wearing black makes it stand out that much more, especially when you get to the Death Star part and it's all dark. I, I like it cosmetically, but that makes me think George Lucas perceives us all to be morons if we couldn't, put together that it's a different lightsaber just because it's the same color. So does that mean all Sith have
2: the same lightsaber because red is the only one they're allowed to use? <laughs> well, all Sith do not have theirs fall to the death of Cloud City either. Adam, what about you? Do you like the green?
1: I think the color is great. I think it looks wonderful. As Matt said, against the black of his tunic and it's a nice bright color against the just like sickly round of the desert. I think it looks really, really good. I still think it would have been nice to see Luke you know, finalize the building of a saber, which I know is something they wanted to show just because that, when you read the books and all that, it is your final step to becoming a Jedi is the construction of your own lightsaber. And though that's something they add in the EU, it has become an important part of the mythology. I would have liked to see just, just him finishing, inserting a Kyber crystal something like that, but that's meta knowledge that's not in these films.
2: Yeah, and that's wonderful that you point that out because Vader points that out later, where when he lights the lightsaber, he says, your training is now complete. That's how he knows is because he made a lightsaber. That's a great point. So Luke is sending a ton of guards to their death, and I remember this scene so distinctly because, Adam, remember how Showtime, every once in a while, would flash their emblem in the middle of movies that they'd show?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In one instance, Luke is climbing the barge, a guard emerges, and Luke just kind of throws him out. The, emblem, the Showtime emblem appeared right there, and I watched that tape so <laughs> damn much that that scene is embedded in my brain. I That's still funny. think when I'm watching a Blu-ray, that Showtime's going to show up
1: right, <laughs> right there on the screen. <laughs> oh, gotta love early piracy.
2: Right? One part of this fight that baffles me is the part where Han saves Lando from the pit. Not the scene, but what Lucas changed about it. Before, when Han had the gun pointed at the Sarlacc tentacle to shoot it, Lando said, wait, I thought you were blind. In the original, Han goes, it's all right, trust me. But for some reason, Lucas had to have it outlined in subsequent versions that Han needs to say, it's all right, I can see a lot better now. (sighs) Again, like last week, the original was short and sweet, George. You didn't have to change this fucking line. <laughs> yeah,
3: and that first line is much more of a Han Solo thing to exactly. say. Exactly. Yes, that's the thing you're complaining about, not
2: the death scene. <laughs> oh, we'll we'll talk about that here in a bit. I'm getting to that.
1: The trust me line. The nice thing about that is too is the last time these two were face to face, freaking Lando backstabbed him. You know, they yes. haven't had time to reckon. They haven't had time to reconcile. <laughs> Yes. Lando's got no reason to trust him and Han's got no reason not to shoot him dead in the fucking face.
3: <laughs> just is family guy does when
1: they when they do this. Where he's like, well, yes.
3: I, I bet you're blind. I am. And he keeps shooting his leg.
1: <laughs> they just showed this episode the other day and that ruined it for
2: him. Also, it should be said, since Matt wants to talk about it so bad. This is also how Boba Fett dies. Yes, I said dies. As Han is told by Chewie that Boba Fett is near. As Fett raises his weapon, he's shot from behind and sent into the pit. It's so funny listening to Lucas on the commentary because he he almost apologizes for killing Boba Fett like this. And he said that if he had known that he was as popular a character as he was, he wouldn't have killed him like this. He ends that part of the commentary by saying, a lot of people don't believe he's dead anyway. (laughs) Yeah. At least Lucas made it right by giving him an awesome backstory, right, guys? Uh, <laughs> if I knew he was
1: going to sell so many toys, I wouldn't have killed him. <laughs> Your Lucas sounds more like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> <It
0: does. laughs> Gee, you
3: think if Boba Fett was as popular as he was, he would have gotten a more dignified death scene. This make him look like such a pot
2: you know what though, I never had a problem with it though. Honestly, maybe it's just because I have no real connection to Boba Fett, honestly. I never got the popularity of this character. So the fact that they killed him like this, I don't I don't mind. It's like we're gonna talk about how they killed Darth Maul later. I I, I don't mind. How you decide to kill him, you kill him.
1: Yeah. I'd rather him stay dead than anything else. Yeah, well you're right about this lightsaber
3: being set to stun because I don't <laughs> think a single person <laughs> dies in this movie because of a lightsaber wound. No. Like, it's it's like a goddamn stun stick.
2: <laughs> it's also a PG movie, too.
3: Like, this one feels somewhat... Like, from this point on, this movie feels tremendously kiddified as far as the violence goes. I agree with that. Not yeah, least... I want this to be, you know, like, the, the Paul Verhoeven version. Oh, it's about going right <laughs> to say, you want a Paul Verhoeven <laughs> to direct this. <laughs> like, where blaster bolts, you get squids all over the place, but... You know, not that Empire was obscenely violent, but whenever people got shot or there were the... Like, they weren't afraid to show people dying. Mostly, unless you're you're a pilot, then it's okay in this movie. (laughs) Everyone else is not allowed to die on screen in any sort of physical combat.
1: Luke has the equivalent of me picking up the wrapping paper tubes at Christmas and bonking my kids over the head. (laughs) That's what this lightsaber is. Maybe the green is just low power.
2: Well, we're going to find out later that it's pretty good at cutting, too. In the course of the battle, Leia breaks free of her chains and uses them to choke Jabba to death. This is a great moment. I love that they had Leia be the one who kills Jabba.
1: Absolutely. This has been a take-charge woman the whole time. This is a, you know, into the garbage chute fly boy. She's never been a damsel, and even here, where she is a damsel in distress, she's not, and they don't rescue her. Leia rescues herself, and that can never be so overstated because it matters, and I think it's a big part of why that character is so important.
3: Agreed. You know, Dave well, if this exact scene happened now, they'd accuse this movie of being too woke. Oh, you're not fucking kidding. Oh, yep.
2: absolutely. Luke is shot in his bad hand, so we're reminded of that. And then Luke gets to the other ship's gun and uses it to blow up the entire barge and palace. They fly away, and Han tells Luke that he owes him one now. And Luke says that he has a promise to keep to an old friend. More on that here in a bit. We cut to the Death Star as another ship lands and out emerges some Imperial Guards. I know Adam was happy about this.
1: Yes. Those are my guys. I rag on people for loving Boba Fett just because of the way he looks. However, these are my characters, the Imperial Royal Guards. (laughs)
2: which makes no goddamn sense. Although I had <laughs> I, I had three of these dolls growing up, and I had a dog who loved the taste of them. And I think two of them look like they, get, they got in a fight with a Rancor. We also get the introduction to a character who, again, would have originally only been seen in this instance had we not had special editions, the Emperor. So let's talk about this character. Lucas had originally cast someone else who had gotten sick and actually died right as this film was ending production. But one of his assistants had seen a guy by the name of Ian McDermott in a play and cast him in this, a role that would define his career. McDiarmid said it was kind of daunting being on this film, but he loved doing it. He also really loved hanging around Mark Hamill the most, as they were only five years apart, believe it or not. They spent most of the shoot playing off each other in some scenes that we're going to talk about later. But I love how he is here. I love the makeup. I love McDermott's voice, his haunting laugh. He personifies the Emperor. Not called Palpatine yet, by the way, just the Emperor. He is a great evil character. I love him.
1: In this movie, he is fantastic. He's what it needs. I think including him in the special edition of Empire takes a little bit of it away because before you could just, it could be a, you know, distorted hologram. Seeing him here, seeing him walk feebly in his hands, slightly outstretched, but you still get the sense of menace and power just by him being there. And he is amazing in this movie.
3: Oh, I, I, it's much like Java where you wish you hadn't seen him before, but at the same time, the fact that he comes off as so he's elderly without being decrepit, which I think is a tough thing to, to balance. And I, I like that he is, he's theatrical without being Emperor Ming from Flash Gordon, which is what this easily could have been mm-hmm.
2: and could very well become in movies we've discussed.
3: <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny that 40 years later, he's still playing the same character.
2: The Emperor tells Vader that Luke will seek him out and only together can they turn him to the dark side and that everything is proceeding as he has foreseen. We cut to Adam and Matt's favorite place, Dagobah, as the one cinematic year between films was enough to make this 900-year-old Jedi near death. (laughs) Now, Yoda wasn't going to be a part of this film. There were no plans to include him. But this scene was put in for a couple reasons. One, Kazm believed they needed to close the book on the hanging thread that Luke had indeed completed his training, and Yoda had to be the one to tell him that. And two, after speaking to child psychologists, following the release of Empire, Lucas decided that people needed to be told from a trusted source that Vader was not lying last week, and that Luke is indeed his son. Lucas has even said that James Earl Jones didn't believe it himself up until the release of this movie. So they wrote this scene, a scene that is a very unsatisfying end to a very fun character.
3: This suffers from the why now question of him dying, where it's like, Okay, he seemed okay last time and they don't explain why he's suddenly succumbing to his old age. It's it's also weird because he says you still have much to learn but he's like, Because I'm dying, you swung your lightsaber around, you're okay. He's like yeah it's like, yeah, just let me let me die in peace. It feels like he was he only said what he said at the end of Empire to keep him there, not necessarily that his training was so far gone, because if this is all it takes to become a Jedi, the prequels are even dumber now by comparison. <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah, you just swing your lightsaber around and kill some people, you're fine. And y- Yoda, with the whole yeah, he's your father, what do you want me to say? Uh, <laughs> the, way, the way he delivers it is just so, because originally Empire was supposed to be the reveal was Obi-Wan killed your father, which I guess is true from a certain point of view. That's what
0: the <laughs> same
3: uh, But yeah, th- this scene feels very tacked on. It's too shorthanded, and he should have said, uh, you're is complete, when you get a new haircut?
0: <laughs> i really
2: harping on that haircut.
3: It's so distracting, because Empire, everyone's fashion is perfect. This movie has 80s fashion. Harrison Ford's hair is all poofy. For some reason, like, it's
2: never looked that fluffy in his life. I also hate how the blanket just doesn't fall right. Again, George, why not fix that?
1: I've liked this return to Dagobah more than I enjoyed the first trip to Dagobah. I don't have a problem with this at all. Maybe it's just I like the kind of down feeling that it is. I do feel that it's incomplete, much like Luke's training, because we don't know why he's suddenly worthy to become a Jedi. He left and his training was incomplete. He returns and he can And we don't get the how, the why, or any of that. And it's, you know, not a biggie when you're going off with a childish space fantasy, but there's just something incomplete there. I've never had an issue with this. I do like seeing an end of Yoda, though it does feel like another 400 years has passed on Dagobah, when it's only been a year, because he's not the spry little Muppet that he was last week. But Mm. I've never had an issue with this, and I've liked this Dagobah better than Empire's.
2: When
0: 900-year-old you reach,
2: look as good you will not. <laughs> <laughs> so Luke is contemplating what to do next when he's visited by a six-hour working out at Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, Kenobi says that what he said was true from a certain point of view, and that Vader was now more machine than man. Kenobi also reveals that in order to prevent Vader from getting his hands on his kids, they were hidden when they were born. And then Luke puts together that the other Skywalker Yoda spoke of is actually Leia. Oh. there's
3: only one other goddamn woman in this universe. <laughs> there,
0: are, there are no other options.
2: All right, let's talk about this. So when he originally did a draft of the, this entire saga, he did indeed have Luke have a sister, and plans were in the next film to have Luke search for her. But some have said it's because he was disenfranchised with Star Wars given how much strain it put on his personal life and his actual health. And he just didn't want to deal with it after this one. So he wrapped up both the love triangle between Han, Luke, and Leia and the sister thread by just making Leia the sister. It does shorten the universe, though. I'll agree with you, Matt. Adam, how do you feel about this?
1: On its surface, does it bother me? No. When I think that Vader had Leia face-to-face with his finger waggling in her face and he couldn't sense that she was his daughter that he, he couldn't sense that she was strong in the Force, that she was the other. It makes no sense. Retroactively retconning the decision doesn't make sense in the light of everything. That said, I like Leia being a Jedi. I like that she would have ties to the Force and to Anakin. I just think it's a sloppy way that as much as George said he had this plan the whole time, He's full of crap because, no, he didn't. Yeah. His
2: planned that he has a sister, it wasn't planned to be Leia until this draft. I do want to say, too, I, I can retcon the Vader-Leia thing just because what Ben says. He's more mechanical now. I think a lot of his thoughts are clouded now. I don't know if he knows that he blew up his daughter's home planet a couple films ago. I, I think a lot of that is hearsay, and I think a lot of that is you know internalized in the character itself. And I can go with that conceit.
1: As powerful as Palpatine is, the Emperor should have known that there was another that he could have brought in. Maybe easier to turn, being that that sibling would have never even been trained as a Jedi.
2: True. But, you know, later, the only reason Vader knows that Luke has a sister is because he's reading his thoughts. Yep. So, even you know. though
3: he's still as mechanical as he was when he was with Leia. So I'm, well, on, I'm on Adam's side. That well,
2: this... no. What I'm saying is he's reading Luke's thoughts. He didn't know, but he's reading Luke's thoughts as a dark side Jedi would. I think you're right.
3: It compartmentalizes the universe. And I also don't like that the... All right. There's something else that's said that the prequels have, have ruined. There's a line she has later on that we'll get to that I, I think makes this all the more obscene. But Palpatine, if... He's supposed to be the most powerful. He should realize she would probably be easier to turn than Luke since Vader blew up her home planet and killed her parents. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for someone to replace Vader out of sheer vengeance, go after her.
1: Fear, anger, hate, she would be full of it, yep.
3: Yeah, Yeah. and those are all the things that he says Luke has to wrestle with. But he's done a pretty good job so far. We haven't really seen hints of Dark Luke outside of him force choking the
2: pig. (laughs) Pigs. Like, that's the most angry he's gotten. We cut to a briefing of a mission. I'm sure we're going to get a whole Disney Plus series about soon. Well, they made an entire,
3: they made an entire movie about it. <laughs> Getting plans for the Death Star. Well, that was the first one. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah. Well, As, we're going to get a whole story about the Boffins who died. Exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Ozma Mothma says that the Death Star's weapon system aren't operational yet and that the Emperor is now on the Death Star, giving them a chance to take him out. Admiral Akbar talks about the mission to take out the shield, which is generated from the moon of Endor, and that Lando is leading the team that is going to go into the Death Star to take it out. Funny story about this General Nadine. This guy auditioned with the beard that he has here, and when he showed up after he got the part to the set, he had shaved it off. Producers then told him that his figure has a beard, so
0: wardrobe came <laughs> up with
2: a fake one for him to wear in this scene. You couldn't see G.I. facial hair then or now, could you guys? This guy has given interviews saying that he was really upset at the time because I guess in the original script he had a bigger part, but here he's just used for this part of the briefing. We then go out by the Falcon where Han insists on Lando taking the ship on his mission. This pissed me off as a kid because I was like, This guy had you frozen, and now you're going to trust him with your ship?
3: <laughs> Which was actually his ship initially, as we Exa- learned. That yeah,
2: time. yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, all the more reason for him to run off with it. <laughs> yes. I'm going
3: to trust you. And also, the. I love how Admiral Akbar is just so, like, he comes off as annoyed with these briefings where he's like, I'm going to make this as simple. There's a lot of fucking things you can run into when you're on the Death Star. So rather than going up and down, you just have to go for the straight line. <laughs> it's, which, by the way, if uh, Galaxy's Edge... They need to make a a restaurant called The Cabinet of Dr. Calamari. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because the tagline could be, Your taste buds can't withstand flavor of this magnitude.
2: They wish each other good luck as Han gets on a ship and then says that he's hoping he gets to see her again, meaning the Falcon. Vader checks back in with the Emperor, who says he has no concern about the Rebels' mission to Endor or the raiding ships coming for the Death Star. Meanwhile, Han, he gets close to the Death Star on the Imperial ship and tells the commanding officers that they need to get past the shield as they're a part ship requesting permission to land. He sends the code, and then Vader approaches. Vader sees the code and allows the ship to pass. Luke knows that Vader is the one who lets them go, and one thing I love about this film is that they linger on Vader after every decision he makes. After Vader grants them permission to land, we are hearing the Imperial march, and we just see Vader looking out the window for a few seconds. It's a great way of amplifying that, yes, he granted them permission to bypass the shield, and yes, he knows that his son is on it.
1: Yeah, and he wants, them, he wants
3: the Rebels to think that their plan is working.
1: Yeah, it's been one of the, you know, that until it comes later you don't know exactly why but it's it, that way you get little hints to it as you watch it later everything's proceeding as he as he has foreseen it
2: we cut to endor han and the troops they're casing the place when they spot a couple of troops han says that he and Chewie they'll take care of them and promising to be quiet as he walks down he steps on a branch which alerts <laughs> the other troops and then the speeder bike chase this is a very fun chase. I think the bikes sound cool. I like that we once again see the lightsaber in action. I like that Williams, once again, lets Ben Birch's sound effects take up the entire soundtrack. I love the shot of when the scout trooper is thrown into the tree by Luke. And that shot of Mark Hamill's stunt double flipping off his bike as it crashes is pretty great. But this wasn't nearly as thrilling as the Walker battle from last week. And some of it just doesn't look very good. I think this
3: is the one where some of the, some of the renderings have aged pretty poorly. But I've never understood the Empire, okay, we got to blend in on a forest planet. So we're going to wear pure white. <laughs> <laughs> like, I get it on Hoth because it's all snow and those look more convincing. But these scout troopers stick out in the middle of a bunch of California redwood. Which they also- is also my problem is that now that we're on Endor, we're just going to shoot in the forest. Like, there's not much in the way of sets outside of the Ewok village. Which I really like about the previous two movies is the way they use... Real-life backdrops, but build these wonderful sets. Like on Yavin, there's the temple. On Hoth, there's the rebel base. Here, it's just for shooting in the woods.
2: You're forgetting that those white troopers look much better in an eight-year-old's toy box than a camouflaged trooper. <laughs> I think that had a lot to do with it to the aesthetics, too.
1: I love everything having to do here with the speeder bike Chase. I I can't say that it's a big step down from Haas and that battle. I think it's exciting. Wow. I think it's just kinetic, the energy that goes through. I love that we got a new vehicle design that made amazing toys, and mm. we all pretended we're us on our bicycles riding down the street. Yep. Um, I love that this is shot outside, and I can go camp. Here at Ewok Village, essentially, 30 minutes from home. To me, the troopers looking as they do has always just been because they don't need to hide. The Stark White is kind of like SS Stormtrooper-wise of this is who we are, and we're not going to attempt attempt to look any different, which then makes absolutely no sense why we have such a variety of them in previous films like Rogue One where suddenly you get like six different freaking camo designs for troopers. But I think this is fantastic. The sound is amazing. The way they shot it, that it was just running through the forest Mm -hmm. at a certain speed and then changing the speed of the film when it got played back, chopping off the front of the speeder bike to watch it crash. It's just, man, man, this takes me back to being a kid. I think I remember this as well. The lightsaber battle at the end of this movie and this scene here is what I can still remember from being four years old. I think it is so amazing.
2: This is definitely a precursor to that Phantom Menace. Oh, the pod race? Pod race, yeah. We cut back to Han and Chewie as they wait for Leia and Luke to return. Luke shows up, but not Leia. As Luke goes, we got to go look for her. And I want to point something out. I haven't really talked about the performances in this film yet, mostly because for a guy who was hired because of what he could get out of actors, Marquand didn't really do a good job with this cast. I I think Ford is okay, as I mentioned, as he quips and the who-me attitude has always been endearing to me. But Fisher, and especially Hamill, who has the fucking movie title named after him, are pretty bad in this movie.
3: Acting has never been the forte of the Star Wars saga. (laughs) But but yeah, I, I think everyone is kind of left to their own devices. I don't feel like anyone is being directed as far as how to emote, because the movie is not really... You think it's about Luke and Vader, but that's only when the movie wants it to be about that. All this shit on Endor, it reminds me of the the second Jurassic Park movie where they just walk around for two hours. That's basically the gist of it. There's not really much happening that's interesting me or really adding layers to these characters. Like, outside of the reveal that Leia is his sister... Lando doesn't really have much to do either from this point on. And like I said, Han spends the last 30 minutes guarding a door. Uh, If anything, (laughs) Lando gets the most to do of anyone besides Luke.
2: Star Wars has been about performances because I mentioned last week that I love what Carrie Fisher did. With Leia last week. And I think a lot of that had to do with the director. And again, Marquand was brought on because of how he worked with actors, but Fisher didn't even like Marquand and he couldn't get a fucking performance out of her to save his life. This is just pretty bad. God, there's a toxic scene that we'll get to later. But Adam, what do you feel about the performances here, sir?
1: I feel they're inconsistent and I think that's kind of the worst part. Because I think there's times that Carrie Fisher is good in this and I think there's times where you can tell some of the trouble personal life that she had and some of the things that was going on is is readily apparent on set mark hamill he's not a good actor period he does amazing voice work and his voice acting is superb he's not a good actor he never has been he can carry a role as a young you know farm boy but that's about it so what he's asked to do more than that i think it's outside of his element but i enjoy the fun when i try to think about it from an acting standpoint matt said that is not what you go to star wars for ever
2: We cut to a shot of the forest ground as footsteps approach Leia, and she is awakened by Wicket the Ewok. Ah, Ewoks. Before we dive into what we think of them as a whole, let's let's talk about the first Ewok we meet, Wicket, played by a very young Warwick Davis. Davis' grandmother heard an ad on UK radio that they were hiring little people for the new Star Wars film, and then she ended up letting his mom know, and Davis, being a huge Star Wars fan, jumped at the chance and he auditioned, and here we are. I think if you're going to introduce these characters, he'd be the one to show first, because he's certainly the cutest of them all. As for the Ewoks themselves, who were created because Lucas had already used up his first choice of beings on this planet, Wookiees, to be Han's co-pilot, he just took Wookiee and reversed the letters, hence Ewok. I have to say, for a bunch of characters who were created to not as much kill the Empire as sell a bunch of merchandise, I like them. They're a primitive race of being. I like that you can't Just walk into their habitat and become friends with them. You have to earn their respect and trust. And I think when it all comes down to it, controversy be damned, I'm a fan of the Ewoks. Adam, you want to go first?
1: (laughs) You know what? I liked teddy bears at four years old, and I liked them at 44 years old. I don't have an issue with the Ewoks. Never really have. I know what they're going for with it. I even got it when I was young. So having a forest planet with these teddy bears, I mean, come on, that's what they are. I like the childish thought process that you have these beings fighting off the invaders, and they've worked for me. I know they get a lot of hate. Stay tuned next two weeks <laughs> for us. Um, but in this movie, I've just I've never hated the Ewoks. I don't necessarily love them, but I don't hate them at all.
3: Yeah, I'll Here say this: they're no, they're no Gungans. True. So my my issue with Ewoks is not their presentation or the fact that they're designed to be cute. That's not my issue. I, I just think this movie does a horrible job of making the Empire seem like a threat. I get it's a parallel of Vietnam because Lucas was still salty about that to a degree because he based them on the Vietnamese, which is also kind of insensitive when you think about it. But I, I don't hate Ewoks. I hate how easily they can take on an entire Imperial fleet. That's kind of my problem. Um, not that the Empire was this force in Empire or a Renew Hope because they could, you know, shoot them and they fall down, but here they they feel like they're the putty patrol from Power Rangers. But, but yeah, as far as Ewoks, they are what they are. I think their hate is a little over the top, especially when you look at some of the other races we've gotten in Star Wars. I'll take these any day. Uh, and, honestly, having watched the holiday special, I'll take
2: Ewoks or Wookiees any day. <laughs> I loved them as a kid. I mean, yeah, I did have the play sets. I did have the Ewok Village. I did have a bunch of these little characters, actually. I was so excited for next week's movie that we'll get to because of the Ewoks. I watched the cartoon as a kid. Like, I loved Ewoks, and I didn't have any plush toys or anything, but I do see what you're saying. This is a precursor to Gungans. So Wicket is learning what a hat is and what kind of food Leia eats as they hear something in the woods and are approached by a scout trooper. Wicket hides as he approaches and as the other trooper gets on his bike to alert the others, Wicket hits the troop's leg. Leia knocks him out and then shoots the other one as he attempts to escape. As they start walking off, Wicket has other plans and they change course. I kind of like this scene. It's a kind of good way to endear Leia and Wicket. And according to uh, Warwick Davis, Carrie Fisher was like a mother to him on the set. Like, he he really, really enjoyed working with her. Boys, how do we feel about the way Leia is introduced to the Ewoks here?
1: I like the way they get together. I think it's cute. It's clear you got a, you know, kind of a mother son thing going on here. Because with Leia and Wicket, you know, alone. I will say, though, second movie in a row, they've decided just to fully go to the effort to break up our heroes. It's it's the type of thing that would be criticized nowadays, but they got so much effort to get the band back together in the first half an hour of this movie just to split them all back up again before the third act.
3: Well, I thought Wicket, when he was poking her with a stick, he was patting her down for drugs. (laughs) (laughs)
2: We go back to the Death Star and Vader just can't seem to leave well enough alone And the Emperor even tells him, listen dummy, I told you to wait on the command ship But Vader tells him about the rebel force that landed on Endor And an interesting back and forth is had here Vader says his son is with them and the Emperor asks, are you sure? Vader says yes, that he felt it and the Emperor replies, funny that I have not He then asks if his feelings on this matter are clear And Vader says that they are But it's becoming apparent that even the Emperor at this point isn't really trusting his right-hand man here. He says that Luke's compassion for him will be his undoing, and Vader must bring Luke to him.
0: Yeah, it
1: shows that there is still something else inside Vader that is drawing towards Luke, and that he's not 100% committed to his master. And a little bit here and there, and I think it just foreshadows what happens at the end. It's not a big deal, but it, it matters.
2: It's also setting up that the Emperor
3: has no qualms about replacing Vader. Like, he views him as expendable.
2: Meanwhile, the others are on the hunt for Leia, but Chewie just thinks about his stomach and reaches for a dead animal on a tree, which gets them caught in a net. R2 gets them out of the net by cutting it, and then they are all surrounded by Ewoks. Han gets in trouble for taking one of their spears and grabbing his gun, and then Chewie begrudgingly gives them his crossbow. But when they see 3PO, they think he's some sort of god and start bowing to him. This is a fun scene, but I think the movie has a few pacing problems which really start here. I remember being so impatient in the theater that I even asked my mom loud enough for the people next to me to hear, when are they going to fight with lightsabers?
3: I don't know if it's pacing as much as just dull. I think once you get to Endor, the the movie is not really about anything. There's a point where there's this look on Mark Hamill's face where he's like, I can't take this kitty shit anymore. I need to get out of here. (laughs) And I imagine Harrison Ford going, please take me with you. I don't like also this... Chewbacca is made to be an idiot, which he's never been established as. Like this whole always thinking with your stomach, they treat that like it's been a recurring gag for these previous couple movies. But Shibaka's always been very competent.
2: When it comes to fixing a ship, he's very competent. But when it comes to thinking about stomach, they never really established that. They never really established how he eats.
3: No, but they've never. Seems so like oh, that like this is Jar Jar Binks, no problem. But it, it's, the fact that it's Chewbacca, and th- that's really where they should have used the, it's a trap line. I I think in the next special edition, they should have Ackbar just come out of nowhere <laughs> and yell it's a trap.
1: Yeah, it doesn't bug me. I mean, it, he's, he's a giant walking carpet. He's going to get hungry. I've got no problem with that at all. Yeah. I I do think it's funny that R2-D2 just has no qualms about, come on, he feels mad. He's like, come on, let's get on with this. So he's just going to cut them loose and drop them all. Let's get moving.
2: What about the pacing?
1: Yeah. I like Endor, so I'm not bothered by it. I feel like this has has less pacing issues than Empire does. So in comparison-wise, I think this is doing okay.
2: We're seeing Han being made to be the main dish. And I really didn't think about it until this viewing. They're actually preparing him as a meal to eat, aren't they? (laughs)
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is what Pirates of the Caribbean got it from.
2: (laughs) 3PO still can't talk them out of it, even as Leia emerges in brand new clothes and hair extensions. It takes Luke using his Jedi powers to get them to listen, and after making it look like 3PO's magic is out of control, they let the Rebels free. We cut to 3PO, telling the Ewoks how they got here, asking them for help. And I love the special effects that accompany this scene. We're hearing Cloud City. We're hearing Nooch Vader and Carbonite. This is all pretty fun stuff. And I remember just watching this and thinking, oh, yeah, I just watched those movies. Like like you're, the, he was reenacting the first two movies here, which I thought was really fun.
0: And I thought it was neat.
1: You know, it's, I mean, he walks meet Michael Winslow. He's <laughs> got sound effects and all. Um, yeah, and you can
2: tell that Anthony Dano's is just having a blast with this.
1: I thought it was neat and cool that, I mean, it makes sense that he could make those sounds you know it's fun Mm -hmm. story time
2: exactly yeah after meeting up the ewoks agree to help the rebels and make them a part of the tribe which is something han says he always wanted but instead of saying and celebrating luke apparently would rather walk outside and into the worst scene of the entire first trilogy this whole scene with leia is badly written badly acted and badly directed first of all we know that the first line of conversation is bullshit because there would be no way of her remembering her mother. That's number one. And I just can't get over how bad Hamill is here as he is speaking extra softly and Fisher isn't much better in her reaction scenes. This scene really needed a once-over and it's damn near toxic.
3: So you stole my point about her mother because as the, the mother she knew for 10 seconds before she died. at The yeah. childbirth. And yeah, you're right. This is a precursor to the prequels far as how it's written as far as how it's delivered because it's stilted as fuck yeah th- this is a terrible scene but i don't think it's the worst scene in the movie that that comes later
1: it is the acting the direction everything in this scene is oh man it's bad carrie doesn't seem like she wants to be there whatsoever Hamill can't carry a scene on his own more or less when somebody else is not helping him whatsoever yeah this is bad
2: we then cut to vader who walks into a bunker, being accompanied by an Imperial walker from the last film, in case you haven't bought one of those for your kids yet. And we have the first conversation between these two since the end of last week's film. Now, unlike the previous scene, I like this conversation. I like how Luke is calling out Vader's real name, and Vader just angrily replies that the name Anakin no longer has any meaning to him. I like how Vader lights up Luke's saber, saying that his skills are now complete, as I mentioned earlier. This is a good scene. Once again, capped off with Vader alone, walking to the edge, and just looking at the camera. Prowse is doing a lot of acting with his expression of movement here, which I dig. This is a great scene for me. Yeah,
1: it's deliberate. It's very tense. When Vader holds that saber before he flicks it on, it's a good moment of tension here. You don't know what's going to happen. There's already been some friction between Vader and the Emperor. So this is nice. We're going to start to run towards the finale here, and this is starting us down that way.
3: This is good. I just wish they picked a better interior because this hallway set It's not very interesting to look at. It's an Endor concoction. What do you want? (laughs) I mean, it's in-a-door, not Endor.
2: (laughs) Jeez. It is Endor, though, because we cut back to the Rebels as they witness Vader and Luke take off and then plan a sneak attack on the bunker. We then cut to space as the ships that are out on their way to the Death Star all report in, including Wedge. I love this stuff, as it certainly gives your sound system a fucking workout. They really worked extra hard on the space effects here, and God, just the advancement between 1977 and 1983 is astonishing to see these space scenes.
1: It really is, and you got to remember we really didn't get much in the way of space battles, you know, in the last one. We got the well, chase got through asteroids. the asteroids. We got the chase through the asteroid field, and that was it. So, seeing the amount of ships that they pulled out here for Jedi and the sound and just how clean it looks though so, you know god knows as we discussed before it's easier to shoot with black matte lines when you're putting it against a against black background but mm-hmm. it's really nice looking and you feel like for the first time the rebellion actually has a sizable fleet than we had back in star wars
3: as far as scale goes this is the the best depiction in the original trilogy as far as fleet battles which is amazing because they're doing the same objective that they did in the whole blow-up-the-big-circle-in-the-sky. But something about this one just feels a little bit more uh, exhilarating.
2: Back on Andor, one of the Ewoks blows the sneak attack by exploring a speeder bike. But I love Han's response as the little guy leaves and the troops follow. He just goes, not bad for a little furball. There's only one left. <laughs> Again, I agree with you, Adam. I, I do think he's more indie here. This Han... makes the Empire look stupid, though. They're going to send ten guys after one bear? <laughs> <laughs> Han gets the final scout trooper By using the old tap on the other side of the shoulder trick
0: <laughs>
2: And they gain access to the bunker We cut to the throne room As Vader and Luke enter And the Emperor sends the Imperial guards away And he also gets rid of the cuffs And tells Luke that he's there to complete Luke's training And the way McDiarmid just elongates his syllables in these scenes And then cackles that laugh of his Just adds so much menace I love the throne room scenes.
1: The set is fantastic. The music is great. Amy McGurin is, is doing a great job as Palpatine. Everything here in the throne room, I mean, as soon as we get in, it feels like we've escalated everything that's going on. And, I mean, there's a wonder. Is it going to be Vader and Palps against Luke? Is Luke going to turn? Are Vader and Luke going to join? There's about to be a, I don't know, not a Mexican standoff. Is it a midichlorian standoff? You know, going here in this room, and a lot of possibilities as to how this could go. I'll be that guy.
3: So my problem with this scene is I wish Palpatine had something to tempt Luke with beyond just, oh, save your friends. Like, I I wanted that, like, what makes the dark side so alluring that Vader would side with Palpatine? And it's never really said why in the original trilogy. It's just, oh, your father went bad. I kind of would have liked to have seen more of that, you know, seduction of evil especially since we've established that Luke clearly has gone down a certain path with
2: not necessarily adhering to the Jedi. I think the only tempting he's really giving him is the fact that he can be alongside his father. But I agree with you, though. I I don't see anything about the Empire besides power that's more alluring than what he's going through now. One of my favorite exchanges happens here when Luke tells the Emperor that his overconfidence is his weakness, and the Emperor, without missing a beat, just responds with, your faith in your friends is yours. Yeah. Just great, great bit of acting there by McDermott, and I'll even give Ham a little bit of credit there. The Emperor also reveals that traps await both sets of his friends, and that the deflector shield and weapons on the Death Star are quite operational.
3: I'm afraid the deflector shield... I love
2: that. ...quite operational. (laughs) It's so great. Just the laugh he gives afterwards, too. The smile. Meanwhile, Han and Leia are captured, and Wicket leaves to get his friends. Lando and his crew, they emerge from hyperspace, ready to attack but they realize that the shield is still up and also that, you guessed it, it's a trap! Another great moment happens here when Lando yells that fighters are approaching and we cut to what has to be, what, a hundred ships attacking at once, just completely engulfing the screen. I've been pretty hard on this film's effects, but most of the stuff in space, as I mentioned earlier, is pretty flawless.
1: Yeah, and this is one of them. Watching an entire wing of ties just... Oh, yeah. Just rushing towards the screen, swarming like insects is, oh, man, it's great.
2: From the point of view of the the Falcon's window, too, which is a great great choice. Meanwhile, the Emperor is starting to feel Luke's anger. We cut to the moon as Han and Leia, they're led out of the bunker, and 3PO gets their attention. As the troops approach, so do the Ewoks, and now the ground war is on. We're seeing arrows take out troops as Han and Leia make their way to the bunker. The Ewoks are swinging from trees and dropping rocks from gliders. And I just love this shot of the Stormtrooper throwing an Ewok down. (laughs) Funny to see the Stormtrooper just throw this teddy bear. I also distinctly remember this rock-throwing scene because when that rock hit Wicked in the face, I distinctly remember my mom laughing for about three minutes in the theater.
3: (laughs) This is getting into short-round territory for me. Oh, boy.
2: Really? You're not liking any of this, huh?
3: No, because it just,
2: it kind of retroactively
3: makes the fact that the Rebels won in Episode 4 just dumb luck, because apparently the empire suck at combat.
2: Han decides he needs help to get inside the bunker, so Leia calls for R2-D2. He shows up and starts to break the code of the door before a stormtrooper actually shows good aim for once and shoots him. Since when could these guys shoot?
1: (laughs) The same stormtrooper that (laughs) showed up against the Jawas in the first film.
2: There you go. (laughs) Yeah,
3: Yeah. they have one elite death squad. That's (laughs) it.
2: (laughs) This causes R2 to go a little haywire, so Han decides he better hotwire the door if they're going to get in. It should also be said that producers were smart in getting this location because all these trees were set to be turned into logs anyway, so they had free reign to blow up as many of these trees as they wanted. (laughs) Nice. Great producing. We go back to the Emperor, who gives the okay to fire at will, and we see the Death Star take out a cruiser. Lando says they need to give Han more time to get the shield down, as Admiral Ackbar begs to retreat. Meanwhile, the battle on Endor rages on, as Han continues to work on the door to the bunker, and we spend quite a bit of time watching an Ewok die. This scene devastated me as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) seeing this Ewok just... One of them wakes up and the other one's down. And the one that wakes up is just mourning his friend for like a minute. I'm like, oh my God, cut away.
1: The way that he rolls them over and you can almost hear him sobbing. But I think it's important, and I'm glad that they showed that there are Ewoks dying here. You know, this isn't G.I. Joe where everybody's jumping out with (laughs) a freaking parachute. These little teddy bears are getting killed off.
3: Yeah, if you're not satisfied with your Ewok bloodlust, Wait till we watch the battle for Endor. (laughs) Oh, my God.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. Hold that thought. How are you guys holding up now? We've gotten past the lull before the battle. Now we have two, soon to be three battles going on all at once. Are you guys with the film and the way it's cutting from battle to battle up to this point?
1: I am, and I am in a big way. I think the second that Luke steps onto the Death Star, I think everything is ramped up. I think seeing here in in the throne room and when he opens that window to look outside... Also, The last time we see this maneuver, I think seeing (laughs) the ships show up and seeing the space battle, two of the three are amazing. What's going on on the Force moon is good. I think it's overshadowed by just how great uh, ILM did on that space battle. But I like seeing the woodland creatures take it to the man. But I think this is extremely well done.
3: I'm with Adam. Two-thirds of this I really dig, and the third one I could take or leave. you talking about the same one he is? Yep, the battle on Endor itself is the one that I I think is the least engaging cuz I also know nothing bad is going to happen to Han or Leia. And that's just me instinctively. Like not that's not me being an asshole or a cynic, that's just
2: if they if they had the balls to kill off Han they would have done it last movie and kept him that way. We go back to the throne room where Luke is feeling more and more helpless. The emperor tells him to strike him down with a saber and make his journey to the dark side complete. Luke turns to resist but he finds out he can't as he turns around and gets his saber, lights it, and swings at the Emperor only to be stopped by Vader. And the second battle between these two is on. Oh, that shot of the Emperor laughing as those sabers are clashed. Oh, man, that was such a great shot.
1: The lighting that's done on his face, the way that Mm -hmm. he's so pleased that he brought them together, and even the way that the entire time in the stone room, the way that Luke and Mark Hamill is lit is very sickly look, like it is not done in a flattering way at all. Mm-mm. So you almost feel like he is falling towards the dark side just because of him being shot the way that he is.
3: Yeah, if there was a like a particular still image that I would want from the trilogy as like a Facebook cover photo, that's probably the one I would pick. That's really the summarization of this movie on the whole, as far as what it's trying to accomplish.
2: Back on Endor, we see Chewbacca and a couple Ewoks, even the playing field by taking over an AT-AT. And I love seeing it take out another AT-AT and then do what Chewie loves to do, which is shoot as a bunch more troops. And then bunches of congratulations from the Ewoks is great here. And I love the Ewok on the tree celebrating with a gun in hand. That's a great <laughs> shot, too. We see Ropes take out a couple speeder bikes, and then Logs take out a couple AT-ATs. Meanwhile, Leia is shot, and if there's one bit of writing in this movie I cannot stand, it's doing the inverse of the last film, where Han says, I love you, and Leia says, I know, before she shoots the guards. Argh, so bad. I hated that they felt the need to do that. But this is followed by a walker coming up and pointing its gun right at Han and Leia. And I'm like, Chewie, did you have to give your friend a heart attack before revealing it's you? Like You point the gun right at him.
1: Yes, after all the things Han's probably made Chewie do over the years, yes.
2: That's true. That's a good point. (laughs) We, uh, We then cut to the throne room where the saber battle commences and Luke is proving to be quite stronger than last time as he kicks Vader out of the way before the Emperor encourages Luke to continue using his aggressive feelings and to let the hate flow from him. There's some great directing going on here as we are seeing Luke, like Vader last week, always having the higher ground Here, he is on the steps before Vader walks up and tells him it's unwise for him to lower his defenses, and then he attacks him again. They fight some more before Luke flips onto the catwalk behind him, once again taking the high ground. But as he refuses to fight, Vader takes his saber and then completely destroys the catwalk, taking him down. And the Emperor could not be enjoying himself more. He is fucking loving it. What do you guys think about the final uh, lightsaber fight here?
1: I think it's kind of perfect that the Emperor is just cackling throughout the entire thing. I think this saber battle is the best one in this trilogy. Not this moment, but the moment that we're going to come back to here in just a few minutes. But I think this lightsaber battle is the one that matters the most. It's the one that I think of the most because it just feels very emotionally charged, as well as being directed well, staged well. The stunt workers did an amazing job, and Williams really just brought it home with the score as this fight is going on.
0: You're right,
3: because this one is the one that has the most, like, emotional heft behind it. Because it's not really until the reveal that the one in Empire actually has any, like, heft to it. The one in A New Hope is just predicated on a history that we have not seen, so we just have to take it as it is. The choreography is better. I like that they use a lot more wide shots, like they'll they'll do
2: top-down shots of the throne room.
3: And I can see where everybody is, which I appreciate a lot.
2: It should be said that from the time they enter the throne room, Prowse is not in the Vader costume. All of this is a guy we spoke about a couple months ago when we covered Pirates of the Caribbean, Bob Anderson. I'm not going to say it's the best as the choreography is a little slower than last week, but I will say the drama behind the resistance from Luke combined with the emotion behind the battle and the brilliant score from Williams, all things that you guys have already mentioned makes this, I don't know, I I, I have to rewatch all these movies, but perhaps my favorite lightsaber battle of the entire series, but we'll get to more later. We're back in space as Lando begs Han to get the shield down. Meanwhile, Han gets the troops to exit the bunker before going back inside and setting up the chargers to blow it up. We go back to the throne room where Vader is searching for Luke and reading his thoughts while doing so. As he looks, we see that they're filming Luke encased in a half-dark light so we know his emotions are high and he could be on his way to the dark side. Vader turns up the emotion by reading his thoughts and seeing that he's thinking about his sister. And as soon as he brings up the possibility of turning Leia to the dark side, this is too much for Luke. He emerges from the shadows, and the picture Marquand and company are painting with this scene is just beautiful. As it's lit with just the red and green sabers, Williams is really amping up the score with perhaps his most brilliant piece of the entire series. As Luke gets Vader down, he's not letting up. He pounds and pounds away with the saber until he does exactly what his father did last film, which is slice off his hand. Great scene here.
1: This is my favorite part of this, which is my favorite lightsaber battle, is when Luke Mm -hmm. is hiding, the way that the lighting is shot, so his face is literally by face. The Joker became two-faced in that moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) literally there under the stairs. But the way that James Earl Jones just sinisterly draws out that,
0: sister,
1: you have a twin
0: sister.
1: It's just, oh, there's something to it. And Hamill exploding out. The only time we should hear... A member of the Skywalker family (laughs) yelling no is this one, Um, when Luke just explodes out, and that rage and anger, and I love what we get toward at the end of this fight right here. I think it's amazingly done, and I think it's the perfect crescendo to the way this lightsaber battle has gone back and forth.
2: It is completely uncoincidental that Luke's hand is half in red here as Lucas wanted to illustrate in obvious terms how his severed hand is so much similar to his father's and that what he is doing is exactly what the evil ruler intends. All that makes sense. Love it. But why, oh why, does Luke throw away his fucking lightsaber? <laughs> <sighs> he tells the Emperor that he will never join him and that he is a Jedi, like his father before him. The Emperor is not even phased, as he's like, so be it, Jedi. We cut to the bunker being blown up and Lando telling Ning-Num that he told him that Han would do it. (laughs) I think you're right, Matt. I I think Billy Dee Williams might have the other great performance in this movie. (laughs) His emotion's great here. We go back to the throne room where the Emperor has had enough. This kid's not going to join him, so he decides to take him out by shooting lightning bolts out of his hands. Brutal stuff, as he looks pretty evil while doing it. And I have been really hard on Hamill's acting this entire podcast. This scene is an exception, because when he's on the ground writhing in pain, I believe that he's about to literally fucking die. The Emperor says as much. And as he gets Luke more and more weak, we have the ominous presence of Vader, who looks on and... Okay, I have been relatively quiet about the changes made in this movie? Honestly, since Jabba's Palace. Yeah, the eyelids of the Ewoks were added, but who cares? But there is one change here, soon to be followed by another one, that is unforgivable. In the original version, we are seeing Vader look at his son in complete anguish, and we really don't know the thoughts going on behind that helmet of his. He's looking attentively, but it's not until he reaches for his master that we realize he is about to do something completely heroic. In the Blu-ray version... For some goddamn reason, Lucas inserted some ADR of Vader looking, yelling no once, and then lunging for the Emperor, yelling an elongated no, reminiscent of the one he yells in about three movies. It's not ruinous, as I think the scene speaks for itself, and it is a great scene nonetheless, but Jesus Christ is this dumb.
1: It's not ruinous because I can hit mute when I know it's coming. (laughs) I mean, this is his. No. I mean, it's freaking Kurt Russell at the end of Tombstone walking out. No, no, no. It holds – there's no reason to add it. There is no place for it. I don't know what George Lucas's boner is with adding freaking no to these scenes, but – It just takes away from the sound and music that's going on, and it is so goofy that it is one of the worst things that he did in adjusting this trilogy.
3: You're right about Mute, but I think Lucas must not be a Simon and Garfunkel fan because the sound of silence is far more (laughs) powerful than anything you can add as far as bad ADR. It's not ruinous, but I think this is the change where I don't see a real justification for it. I hate the Emperor's yell as he falls into the reactor pit. I think that sounds terrible.
2: (laughs) I don't think that's bad, but I just love those shots of Vader looking at Luke, looking at the Emperor, and we're just seeing his helmet go back and forth. Those are great, great shots. But to insert this, it was just mind-blowing that he would do that. But that's the difference of 1977 George Lucas and 2004 George Lucas. He has to tinker. He grabs the Emperor, and I love how the Force lightning causes Anakin's skeleton to be outlined in his helmet. That's a great shot, mm-hmm. too. And then throws him down the shaft where he falls about 60 feet before blowing into smithereens. This labored breathing that Vader is doing after this feat was originally going to be his actual breathing before the decided to liven it up a little bit, which I think was the right choice. And I think this breathing works for this scene.
1: Yeah, I think it's... It's weird, because as a kid, I thought it was just what he was like without the equipment.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: here it's, no, he's been damaged even more. He's more, even more of a shell of the man that he used to be.
2: Meanwhile, we see Lando and Wedge make their way into the Death Star and head to the main reactor. Luke takes Vader to his ship, and by his ship, I mean Vader's ship, before Vader
3: yeah, stops just like him. dragging him across the floor.
2: <laughs> before Vader stops
3: well, it's him. Which funny that
1: no Imperial stops and say hey, is that farm boy dragging Lord Vader across the floor?
2: Well, I thought about that, and the way I ended that line of thinking was thinking, you know what, these guys are thinking about getting off this fucking thing because it's about ready to explode, so they don't fucking care. Luke takes Vader to his ship before Vader stops him and begs Luke to help him take his mask off so he can look on him with his own eyes. The scene is good. I'm glad they didn't touch it up because there were rumors while the prequels were being done that they were going to digitally put Hayden Christensen in this scene. They were going to put him in makeup yeah. and digitalize him into this, was what I had heard.
3: Well, could than that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, true. But it's good seeing him as he is, an old man who was mechanical and instrument of evil, and Luke gets to see him die, not as that monster, but as his father. This scene gets me, especially as somebody who has lost his father in the last decade or so. This, this scene does really get me.
1: Yeah, it's a good moment the redemption of the father by the son by the father it's it's nicely done it's emotional it's it's why i think star wars has been a family series for so many people it seems like this
3: yeah it's a necessity to have this scene like you can't do a full redemption arc if he stays entirely mechanical there was a hand attached with that too did you bring my hand
2: (laughs) (laughs) when i was a kid i completely missed that luke escaped this hangar before the death star blew up so i assumed that he was dead But no, he flies out of it, and everyone escapes just in time to celebrate on Endor. Oh, boy. Why, George? Why? Before I get to that, though, I do like the scene that Lucas inserted here of Luke lighting his dad on fire. We're going to see that in the prequels, too. But this is a great way of saying goodbye. And Lucas did direct the scene himself.
1: Yeah, it always struck me as a nice send-off to burn him, to create him. You know, that Viking funeral for... Mm -hmm. For which, at that point, I don't know, the, the whole redeem, not redeem is, is up for debate. But I thought it was a worthy end for, for the son to do for his father, at least.
2: All right, the Endor celebration. Now, I get Lucas's reasoning for this, which is that before, Yub was a song written by Ewoks, and Lucas wanted something that could be universally sung to by everyone across the galaxy as they were going to include shots of Coruscant and even Naboo with Jar Jar yelling, We free! (laughs) But Williams told Lucas that the problem is everyone is moving to the best of Yub Nub, so it's going to be tough to come up with something that has a similar beat. But Williams went into the studio, and what emerged is the worst bit of New Age shit that Williams has
1: ever written.
2: I fucking hate this song. I like the scene. I hate the song.
1: I have no issue with this song whatsoever. Really? I swear. And I don't have a problem with the added celebrations either, just because I think we should see the galaxy celebrating and recognizing what's going on. I have an issue that current ownership has basically acted like that never happened, but as a cap to this trilogy, that we should see a final heroic celebration. And I think that's why the change was there. It wasn't because, hey, we're going to add three more movies after this. It's this is the end, and the galaxy is celebrating the downfall of evil.
2: Matt, there are no scenes left, so this must be the one you were talking about.
3: Yeah, I'm with Adam. I don't hate this music at all. I I hate the fucking Gungan inclusion, because the Mm -hmm. CGI in that also stands out, because it's so obviously a digital backdrop of Naboo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just No.
2: And we get to Hayden. My goodness. Again, I see the reasoning behind it. I do. And I I I could have
3: gone... Not because he died as his older self. Provided the logic that he was redeemed, then he should stay as he was in the original, where he is Sebastian Stan, as a force ghost,
2: not Hayden Christensen. Well, Hayden Christensen was who he was before he was Darth Vader. So I see why you do it. I could have gone along with it if Christensen didn't look like he didn't know where the fuck he was when this was filmed. Now, for Christensen's part, he has come out on in interviews and said that when he filmed this, Lucas didn't really tell him what it was for, and had he known it was this scene, he would have played it a lot different. But as someone who watched both versions for this podcast, I can tell you I got a hell of a chill down my back when I saw Sebastian Stan stand there looking at his son. When it comes to Hayden, and we'll get to him when we talk prequels, but let's just say I didn't have as good a response.
1: I think it needs to be Sebastian Stan. I think that's where if he's going to, I don't know, force heaven or force afterlife, whatever, you know, he's decided to go. Though it's weird that he had to be burned where Obi-Wan's there because he faded away. Yoda's there because he faded away. So the logistics, <laughs> logistics in a Star Wars movie, like they don't match. But then how come we don't just CGI you with McGregor out here? and have him as Obi-Wan. It's, mm. I don't think you could do one without the other. It's it just, it, Lucas did it because he could. There's times where he's just the,
3: I think I can make this change.
1: So he decides to do it, and he doesn't care what people think. And it, this is one of the worst choices to me that they've made.
3: The only connection Luke has to his father is with the older version. That's where the emotion comes from when he sees him. Yeah, Not Luke's
1: the standing there going, who's that third guy standing now, there next to Obi-Wan?
3: Who's this long-haired, dipshit poser uh, standing with the two old guys?
2: Yeah. All right. That's it for Return of the Jedi, the end of the first trilogy. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Return of the Jedi? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir.
1: For the first film that I've ever seen in a movie theater, Jedi holds a special place in my heart period. And with that said, I still try to look at this through the lens that we look at all these movies. It's a finale to star Wars, which is what this was done as. I mean, I'm the person who never knew that we were going to have more star Wars. I mean, imagine some of you listening to this, imagine a world where there was not star Wars coming out in movies anymore. There was not star Wars on TV twice a year in a limited series. Like that did not exist. And I think that this movie serves as a good finale to the trilogy that George Lucas envisioned here. I think we get good vanquishing evil. I think we get, for the most part, a nice escalation in threat, in ships, in designs. And I think most of the actors are doing a good job through most of the movie. But I think this movie overall, whether it's on its own or as part of this trilogy, is important to round this series off on a lighthearted note, but at the same time, this is that good vanquishing evil cap that you kind of need. There are some light pacing problems in between Jabba's Palace, you know, the whole going back to Tatooine, it's a little long. Uh, Could I cut five to 10 minutes out of Endor? Sure. And it's going to go smooth, but I still think this movie is very well done. I think from effects to sound, to designs, effects work. This is just one of the better Star Wars movies, even still 40 years later. Uh, and I am happy when this is on. I'll sit and watch it. I think it's got the most emotional lightsaber battle in the entire trilogy, live action. So I hang my hat a lot on this. It's not my favorite of the trilogy. Depending on my mood. It's the one I want to watch on a given day. So it's a solid, very good Star Wars movie. It's an 8. I think that the three characters that we have, our main leads, finished in this movie, very well done. And I kind of wish they stayed finished. So, but 8 on 10 for Return of the Jedi.
2: All right. 8 on 10 from Adam Bunch. Matthew Goudreau, the most pessimistic of all three of us when it comes to Star Wars. How do you feel about Return of the Jedi, sir?
0: Your
3: hate has made you powerful.
0: <laughs>
2: uh,
3: this is a movie that I have always had an up and down relationship with. As a kid, I loved it. As a teenager, I thought it was too schmaltzy. And as I've gotten older, and I've you know I've got kids of my own now, and there's there's some more resonance I can get out of the big focal point with Luke and Vader. That's great. A Jabba's palace section is great, but. As far as this thing being a cohesive movie, it does feel a bit unwieldy and scattershot with how it's put together. I think of the three, this is the weakest as far as being really put together. And I think some of the dialogue in this movie is is fucking horrible. And I know Star Wars is not known for Billy Wilder writing across the board, but there's some painful moments and some painful performance instances too. Having said that, I don't think I can condemn this entire movie. And I'm also reviewing these movies in the grand scheme of Star Wars. That's kind of influencing my score. Like I said, I think the the ending, two-thirds of it are really strong, and the opening with Jabba's Palace is very interesting. But there's a whole bunch of shit in the middle that, quite frankly, does nothing for me and feels like filler. It's sort of like having two Oreos without a cream-filled center. The cookies are good, but I want the real succulent part in the middle I think that's what this movie is lacking. So I'm not going to go as low as you might think I am, but my score is going to be a reflection of the episode number. Uh, Return of the Jedi gets a 6 on 10 for me. Wow.
2: 6 out of 10. As for me, this is a movie... I'm really on even keel with Adam here. This is a movie that is near and dear to me for reasons that have a lot to do with what it meant to me as a kid. That being said, I looked at this with a critical eye. I looked at this as somebody who was walking into a theater trying to imagine seeing it for the very first time. And I will say there are problems here. I think the pacing cannot be talked about enough and I I think Lucas really did want to outline this as a companion piece to the first Star Wars film because we start off on Tatooine and we go out in space and then there's a celebration at the end. This has all the hallmarks of that first film. I think of the two sequels this feels more like that first film but this is also the longest film of the trilogy and it does feel it at times. I think the performances are so uneven. Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Harrison Ford was bad in this I think he was fine as Han I think Hamill and Fisher are about as inconsistent as you can get and as somebody who walked away from last week's film really praising what Fisher did at the end of that movie it was disappointing to see just how bad she is in courses of this film but I do think after that Princess Leia Luke scene on Endor the film picks up it doesn't let up and with the exception of the I love you, I know reenactment, uh, I think this movie is pretty flawless from that point on. I like the action on Endor. Unlike my two colleagues here, I do find the action on Endor very fun. I find the space battle incredible. I love the advancement in technology. There's a great documentary on um, on Disney Plus called Light and Magic where they talk about how they did all those ships at once and just the fact that they were playing with those toys years and years after they didn't think they could ever do it while they were making the first Star Wars film. It's incredible to see Dennis Muren talk about the process of doing this film. The emotion involved in this movie is high. Some people call it a little too high. Some people say it's a little too soap opera. But I think the over-the-topness of Ian McDermott combined with this battle between these two titans that we have seen build up over two-and-a-half films is really grandiose in a great way. And the way it's capped off, with the exception of the addition, is incredible. But there are problems here. And so I'm going to say, given the performances, given the pacing, I'm going to go with my lowest rating of the series as well, which is going to be a 7.5. There's a lot of fun to be had here. And I don't have kids. I'm really sad that I don't have kids of my own. But if I were, you know, this would be the, one of the first things I would show them is this entire first trilogy that the three of us watched for this podcast. It's fun. It's great. That being said, will I have fun revisiting next week's film? <laughs> um, you know, I remember watching these... And being so excited for them as a kid. This first movie especially, this Ewok Adventure that we're going to be discussing next week. Network film. There are reasons behind that. I'll go into all those reasons next week. Adam, what do you remember about Ewok Adventure, a.k.a. Caravan of Courage, that we're going to be reviewing next week?
1: I remember that they came out, these two Ewok movies, and that's it. I'd never seen them. Never watched them, just never did as a kid, which is strange because I did watch the Ewoks cartoon series. So, outside of just knowing that they did two standalone movies for TV, I got no expectations, i little fearful, but I have no idea what we're about to be in for.
2: Speaking of not knowing what he's in for, I guarantee that Goudreau, too. Goudreau, did you even know these movies existed? I was
3: aware of their existence, but I have not seen either of these before this series because if I'm someone who likes Star Wars but wouldn't put a ring on it, I'm definitely not going to check out the made-for-TV movies that most people don't even acknowledge.
2: We'll get to those next week, but boys... It's been great revisiting this trilogy. You know, Lucas did have sequel plans. You know, believe it or not, like I mentioned, he wanted to take this in different directions, even after the big happy ending that was here. But I think he figured along, you know, with his divorce and all the family issues he had coming up, it might have been better to spend time with this family and make two Ewok made for network TV movies. (laughs) But until next week, we go back to Endor for Caravan of Courage. The podcast will be with you. Always. Thank you,
0: guys. Give me.
1: Treeto Dogra is Amuno Noka. It can't issuing. Do you understand anything they're saying? Oh, yes, Master Luke. Remember that I am fluent in over six million forms of... What? What are you telling them? Hello, I think. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Good work, Commander. Leave us. Join us next week for an entirely new review.
0: I feel the good in you. The
1: conflict. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. Hey, point that thing someplace else. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Indeed, you are powerful as the Emperor has foreseen. You don't know the power of the dark side. And if you like this podcast, please head over to PercolatedMedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. I must be allowed to speak.
2: You may dispense
1: with the pleasantries, command. I'm here to put you back on schedule. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Many Bothans
2: died to bring us this information.
1: Edited by Garrett. He's more machine now than man. Twisted and evil. Voiceovers by Adam. Come oh, on, and old oh, buddy, don't let me down. Only now, at the end, do you understand? The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, And audio cues are used as such.
0: Sounds dangerous.
3: because it, it sets up the fact that if you look at the three paragraphs... That wow. the change. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, another David was calling me uh, from beyond the grave. <laughs>
0: so.
1: so he's using things that at least, in my opinion, Yoda would not have taught him. He's a different Luke, and we're not given a complete time frame, but it's clear some time has passed, but he's a different Luke than the one we left at the end of the last film.
2: Luke takes off his robe. You're not going to ask ask me. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Goodra. I didn't know you had anything to add to this. Go ahead.
3: Uh, I did, actually, because I I like that.
2: (laughs) And then Luke gets to the other ship's gun and uses it to blow up the entire barge and palace. They fly away. Excuse me. God, I I shouldn't have had a blue moon while I was recording this. They fly away and haunt. You should have had a forest moon. (laughs)
1: That's no blue moon. Oh, Jesus
2: Christ! They fly away. <laughs> this is definitely a precursor to that Phantom Menace. Uh, oh, the Pod Race? Pod Race, yeah. 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 We cut this back to Han- for, uh, well, uh, I'll save it. You save it. <laughs> we we cut back to Han and Chewie as they wait. They think he's some sort of god and start bowing to him, which is what I'm going to ask these guys to do at my wedding, by the way. Um. That was a joke. <laughs> not a very good one, apparently. This is a fun scene, but I think... And then throws him down the shaft where he falls about 60 feet before blowing into smithereens. Well, just remember,
3: somehow Palpatine
2: returned. Ugh. I'm not thinking about that now. I'm thinking about this movie. And You're saying you don't like when Palpatine's yelling on the way down?
3: Yeah, and I, I just, I know we're going to talk about this in months, but of all the things that have happened in Star Wars, I think the the one that made
2: me the angriest was them trying
3: to say that Palpatine shows up after this.
2: <laughs> Mine is the fact that Boba Fett walked out, got, pulled himself out of the sawlock pit, but we'll get to that.
3: That's enough, that too. Like, so a lot of bad things yeah. have
2: come out of resolutions from this movie. You're right. <laughs>
1: This is one of the worst choices to me that they've made.
3: I've had the
0: fact, the I only think connection, the fact, go ahead. The only connection Luke has to us. <laughs>